time is 5.30. We're going to open the city council meeting for the city of Vacaville. Can we have a roll call, please? Council member Ritchie? Here. Council member Silva? Here. Council member Sullivan? Here. Council member Roberts? Council member Wiley? Here. Vice mayor Stockton? Here. Mayor Roulette? I am here. Would you please stand with me for a moment of silence, followed by the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, Mr. City Manager, do we have any changes to the agenda? No, Mayor, we do not. Um, entertain motion. I got a motion to second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Unanimous. Approval of minutes, please. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Unanimous. Uh, item five, presentations, I see none. Item six, consent calendar. Anyone from the council want to pull anything off from the consent calendar tonight? Seeing none, anyone from the floor that wants to pull anything off the consent calendar tonight? Seeing none, I'll entertain motion for consent. Motion approved. I got a motion and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? It's unanimous. We can move to item seven, uh, business from the floor. In accordance to the government code 54956, members of the public shall have the opportunity to address the city council concerning any item listed on the agenda during and before its final consideration. No other items will be discussed during the special meeting. We will move to item 8A, Mr. City Manager. Mr. Mayor, in accordance, uh, because I've recently moved to a residence within a thousand feet of the Green Tree Project boundaries. Um, in order to avoid any potential conflicts, I am going to uh, recuse myself from participating in this particular item. So at this time, I will invite our Assistant City Manager, George Ann Megersmith, to take over. And I will return back to the, uh, once this item is complete. Thanks, sir. Assistant City Manager, would you like to start us off? Yes, thank you, Mayor and members of the council. This next item is a public hearing on the Green Tree Specific Plan Project. We have uh, Aaron Morris, Director of Community Development, and Pam and Bavon, Planning Manager, to kick off this item. Thank you, Mayor Roulette and members of council. Um, I'm here with the Green Tree Project. Uh, just by way of brief background, on August 30th, the Planning Commission voted 6-0 to recommend approval of the project to the City Council. And on October 25th, the City Council considered the project, 
Uh, at that time, staff provided a detailed presentation as well as the applicant. 16 members of the public spoke. The council closed the public hearing, ultimately discussed that there's support for this project, but the council provided direction to staff to amend the development agreement to offer additional park impact fee credits. Uh, so that has been done. Um, the revised development agreement is in your packet, uh, consistent with the direction council provided. I'm not gonna represent the project this evening. I can answer questions if any come up, but just as a, to briefly, 185 acres, 1,149 residential units, of which 950 are multifamily, attached single family apartments, et cetera, a new shopping center, two public parks that the developer would build and dedicate to the city, trails and open space. Uh, there's a lot of entitlements. Again, I'll just briefly show them on the screen. Uh, this is a large project spanning six years. Uh, getting to the heart of the matter before the council this evening, um, under the revised terms of the development agreement, the developer would receive 100% of the neighborhood park development impact fee as credit for constructing the two uh, neighborhood parks, 50% um, of the community park development impact fee and 50% of the trails development impact fee. This results in a credit of approximately $4 million. Um, overall, the project would generate about $8.9 million in park fees, so $4 million credit would leave $4.9 million to do other things with. Um, just touching on CEQA briefly, the city has complied with all aspects of the California Environmental Quality Act. Uh, these slides were shared at the previous meeting. Uh, we did receive today another communication from Adams Broadwell. Um, it raised some issues, they were all previously raised and staff believes they've been responded to. If the council has any questions about the CEQA for this project, we do have our environmental consultant here this evening who could discuss that further. With that, we get to the staff recommendation slide. Staff is recommending that the council introduce the ordinances for the green tree specific plan and rezoning um, and introduce the ordinance for the development agreement and um, adopt resolutions. I did wanna note we circulated a memo right before the meeting that had minor corrections to the title of the ordinances. Um, so that's what we'd recommend you move forward with. That concludes staff's presentation. Thank you. I'm going to open it up public for public comment on this item. Good evening, mayor, council members and staff. Mic up. Oh, yep. The folks at home can hear you. Got it. <clears throat> uh, my name is Kevin Carmichael. I'm here on behalf of Napa Solano Residents for Responsible Development. Residents is an unincorporated association of individuals and labor organizations that includes City of Vacaville and other area residents. Residents support sustainable development projects that comply with environmental and health and safety laws that benefit the community. Residents opposes this project because the city has not complied with CEQA's requirements to fully disclose and mitigate the project's significant environmental impacts, and the project does not comply with local land use plans and policies. Additionally, residents opposes the project because the project's development agreement does not provide adequate public benefits in exchange for freezing of development standards and other benefits granted to the applicants. On October 25th, this council voted to continue the project's hearing further delaying implementation of the project to amend the development agreement. However, instead of negotiating additional public benefits with the applicant, the council directed staff to amend the development agreement to give the applicant an additional $1.2 million in fee credits, further benefiting the applicant without asking for anything in return. The council has demonstrated that it is willing to extend the project approval process. 
and should continue this item tonight so that staff can negotiate additional workforce benefits in the development agreement to ensure a local skilled and trained workforce are employed for project construction and to balance the additional benefits granted the applicants. Additionally, we request that the council remand the project to staff to prepare a legally adequate revised EIR, which fully discloses and mitigates the project's significant unmitigated noise, transportation, and biological resources impacts. Again, we urge the council to continue this hearing until residents' comments and the comments of other community members are addressed in a legally adequate revised EIR. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next speaker. microphone close enough? Yes. All right. My name is Jerry Vaconum and I'm here to speak uh, for myself as well as IBW Local 180, which is International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Napa Solano County. And I spoke last time and I would strongly encourage you to consider this local hire language and state approved apprenticeship language in this development. As I spoke last time, building parks is great, but we don't need a whole generation of kids growing up in this community still hanging out in these parks when they're 25 years old. The long-term benefit to development is education and jobs, and you need to keep that in Vacaville with this local hire language and state-approved apprenticeship language. A lot of people don't like development. A lot of people are indifferent about it. As a federally recognized Indian, Native American, if you prefer, trust me, we tried to stop the development the best we could, but it's here now. So since there's no stopping it now, you need this language to benefit your children. This is the long-term benefit the community that you need, not just parks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker. Well, I'm, I'm a total rookie and these guys are gonna make me look bad. But uh, anyway, um, tonight I was, before I came here, I was watching the news and there's a lot of really crazy things going on right now, but what I want to, focus on is just kind of our little piece of the pie. So Mr. Mayor, council members, and my fellow Vacaville neighbors, let's talk about Green Tree for a moment. Um, my uncle brought, bought property on the fairway over 40 years ago. And I am old enough to live here now in Leisure Town, so bonus, yay. But I know that there are some issues that the city of Vacaville want to, um, that they have, right? Uh, you're worried about the environmental impact. Um, you want to improve your fiscal health. And what one of the plans were when I was reading an article in a paper a while back was that you were thinking about you would either need to increase the Vacaville members or residents taxes or decrease services. Well, putting a golf course in, and, and as I've been speaking to people tonight, because I have an open mind and I have no problem uh, dealing with things outside of the box, but I think that Vacaville definitely needs a golf course. I would hope that it would be so I wasn't looking out on my backyard every morning because I came to live here and take care of my aunt and uncle. And I would hope that that wouldn't mean that every day I was looking at people going beep, beep, beep as they backed up their truck to, to build homes. 
I know that could still happen with a golf course, but perhaps somewhere else in the city. The city of Fairfield has less residents than we do, and yet they have two golf courses. Now, I know you're thinking that Lagoon Valley, they're getting a golf course, but guess what? It's going to be private, as from what I understand, because it's in a gated community. Um, I went through Leisure Town, because that's kind of what I do, and uh, I spoke to a bunch of the residents. They're going down to Fairfield now, to Travis, to everywhere, and they've been they can't even get on the golf course. Well, can you imagine turning Vacaville back into a destination city where you have the nut tree and you have that iconic golf ball that you can see from the freeway? Whether we do a mini golf and a driving range, I understand housing is important. We have all these people coming in for tech companies, but I hope that you take into consideration too that having a little tiny suburb without all the crime, without all of the nonsense, and I know my time is up, but thank you very much. Thank and you. I hope that you take the time to um, open your minds. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Seeing no others, I'm gonna close. All right, I'm, I'm gonna be on it tonight. We got a long, so if you plan on talking, just stand up right in line <laughs> and we're gonna get through this tonight. Go ahead, sir. Hey, um, evening mayor, city council, uh, Brett Johnson, I'm a local resident. I would encourage your support of this project tonight. And in my day uh, to get 6-0 out of the planning commission is, uh, or was quite a feat. Uh, as far as uh, I'm concerned, uh, I think it represents the highest and best use for this property. So I would just encourage you to uh, support this project. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna close public comment, bring it back to council. Uh, council member Ritchie. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the comments. Um, this project, for the time you know, we have tonight, I don't want to deliver it too far, but uh, this is great. Now, some of the comments, appreciate the public. Um, the last one was highest and best interest. If the golf course was the highest best interest, it would still be here. It didn't make money for a long time. We supplemented it with the city. It was a private property. The business worked, it would still be intact. That's why the golf course is no longer here. So we, we've worked very hard for a long time with the liaisons and gentlemen sitting here for a long time to make sure we bring the best product to Vacaville to serve the whole city. You know, the man next to me, Mike Silva, I had the opportunity to go to the Biotech Conference with him, Jason, city manager, and Don Purse. Like what they're doing is amazing. Like, if you have not been to Salon Community College, see what they're doing in that building, it's amazing what those young kids are doing. They're, they're absolutely trying to change the world. And we're working really hard to tie this whole big city together with the general plan. And Green Tree is a big part of it. We are gonna talk later about how we're gonna take a large piece of property and we need to change it to allow the future to come. You have to invest. It doesn't just show up, you have to plan ahead. The Green Tree is something that we're gonna find the highest and best use of this property. It's gonna create jobs, job creation. There's current people with the housing mix they've done for this, it's absolutely amazing. Where they put into this, they're gonna have density of housing for age-restricted, non-age-restricted. They're gonna, they listen very intently. They're gonna build the high-density apartments first, so therefore every single person in that community will have a, a notice of what's there, what's to come. Yeah, it is true. So, um, 
during the build down, they're the lot size, the square footage is gonna allow for the best cost in ownership or leasing. We don't know the mix yet, but it's coming. The job creation, the workforce housing is gonna allow for kids that are gonna go and work in biotech to be able to afford, they all can't afford massive places. The workforce housing is gonna be a great stepping stone for kids in the community and people are coming to Backfield build these biotech companies to work in our community. The big thing is living, working, residing, tax dollars in the community. It all works together. It's, you know, the housing mix, they're hitting the numbers. Um, this project is amazing. Like they put a lot of work into it. The community benefit are the two parks. That is huge with the trails. You know, we have to have the foresight to think ahead. You know, kids playing the parks, we have to plan. What we're doing with biotech is gonna bring jobs to the community. The gentleman talked about making sure the kids are playing the parks for their life. By having a well-oiled machine in Vacaville of allowing young adults to come here to work with these companies, go to Sonic Green College, to get a pipeline straight into great jobs. I think, I, I try to pay attention, there's a lot of entry stuff. I think it's almost 90 something percent of all students that enter that program get placed in a job. And now they get placed in jobs outside of Vacaville. At some point, those jobs will be in Vacaville. Those are tax dollars. That's what we need. We need to create a community of people. They live, reside, shop, play in our city. Green Tree is going to cause that to happen. If it was the best use to play golf, it would still be here. It is what it is. It, at, when it comes down to it, private property rights, we have to forget, not forget that. That this wasn't a public park. We didn't own this golf course. It was private in the first place. That's it. Councilmember Sullivan. Thank you, Mayor. Um, can you break down the, the fees discussion between last meeting and tonight, please? And what's what's the difference? Yep. Um, the staff recommendation was would have resulted in about one point two million dollars less of fee credit. So as proposed by the developer, they're receiving more credit than staff initially recommended, specifically because of the value that the um, Southern Park, the 4.5-acre park that's really tailored to the senior community, will provide to both the Leisure Town community and the future residents of Green Tree. Gotcha. And is that original option from last meeting still on the table tonight? It's not what we put before you. We brought back what the council directed us to bring back, Do which we is... we have the ability to select that, though, tonight if we changed our mind? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um... So I, I think um, we've been talking a lot about low-income housing in, in the city of Vacaville for a long time. And what we tend to do in Vacaville is we pile all the low-income housing in two or three neighborhoods in town. Um, I'm a little disappointed in this particular project. Um, and I say a little because it's really small because this project by and large is fantastic that we didn't actually add some low-income housing inventory into the project. So what happens is you over-concentrate these neighborhoods where you've got families that they don't have the means to really provide for themselves or help themselves really over concentrated two parts of town two school districts um, and we continue to sort of pack them in and pack them in in two particular districts I think it would have been really nice to distribute some of that load across town uh, work with the developer a little bit to try and make some some changes kind of last minute and to his credit it was the, the ninth inning and it was too late and it was hard but you know the request that was made was really to include some section eight units, you know, particularly in the apartments or, or maybe come up with some other creative ideas to really redistribute kind of that value across town. 
legally we have to build low-income housing in Vacaville for our arena numbers. And so I just don't think it's fair that we consolidate people into two or three neighborhoods. We should spread the love, spread kind of spread the load a little bit and let people experience different parts of town. And so the developer came back and said that there was no way they could include any of those units, which was a bit frustrating, but I just wanted to disclose that I did talk with them. So, you know, in my mind, a partnership is one in which, um, you know, there's some give and take. And so to some degree, I was a little frustrated on that piece. And I started thinking about the parks issue. As much as we're getting two amazing parks, um, we're, we're taking away a golf course. You know, and it's not like we're taking away the city or the developer even particularly anyways, but the people that live there were sold this retirement property, this, this nest egg, the biggest investment they've ever made um, to have golf course views the rest of their life, to have no rear neighbors, to have to not have a shopping center down the street. And so it, it just really feels like maybe it's not enough give. Um, and so I'm really kind of rethinking the, the 1.2, the extra. Um, and I'm actually hoping tonight that maybe we end up on the original motion from last meeting, which is kind of where, where I'm feeling. But that was, those are my questions and comments, Mayor. Perfect. Council Member Wiley. Uh, thanks for this additional information. I also will say that I had a conversation with Mr. Loki yesterday and the thing that I brought up was the concern with our workers and not having any kind of agreements with local labor. And that was a concern that I had. He told me that you know, he is the planner. It's when it gets to the builders and there'll probably be like five different builders. So at that time, there should be an opportunity for some labor agreements because I think that that's important to support our lo local labor as well. So I'm hopeful that if this is approved, that doesn't mean that there's no labor helping build it. Um, so that's one comment I have. And then the other thing, I do uh, uh, like the mix of housing that we have. We don't have the very low income, but we do have workforce housing. And so that's good to have that building. Um, and I think the program has a lot of amenities as well. I am concerned with the high park fees as well. I feel like, um, you know, when we have a development, we expect to have parks. These are nice parks. They are kind of a little bit maybe above, but I don't feel like they're 4 million above. So I would be concerned with agreeing to this new park fee amount that we have today. Okay, council member Silva. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, how many apartments are there? How many total apartment units that are projected? Uh, there's 950 multifamily units, at least 230 approximately are actual apartments, and the remainder of the 950 would be in the form of attached townhouses, townhouses on small lots, condominiums, um, that kind of ownership, a smaller attached product. What would be the cheapest option out of all of those? That would be the apartments? The apartments, the apartments will be um, market rate apartments. So it's not clear with the information we have right now, whether that or a, a small condo would be the least expensive of the housing options in the future. When a individual or families on section eight, does it matter if it's a market rate apartment or not? It doesn't. Um, the voucher takes down the rent by the amount of the voucher and then the, the person still has to come up with the difference. <clears throat> and so, um, uh, thank you, Emily Cantu. I don't know if you heard a comment. Uh, was Emily? Yeah. Oh, there you go. I will word well though. Um, is it okay if I read your email? All right. So, um, so I asked, uh, inquired about uh, how many people were on Section Eight. We've had a presentation in the past about that. 
Um, there's currently about just, uh, 395 people per households on the Vacaville Housing Authority waiting list. Of the 395, there are 191 households with children. So read that 191 households that families, uh, that's being separated families or uh, more or less families. So 191 families, so people with kids um, that are, uh, where are they currently living, do you think? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Okay, Mine's on. Thank you. I wouldn't be able to summarize without the information in front of me um, because they could live in Vacaville, they could live in the surrounding areas of Bay Area. Um, when you open a waiting list to receive applications, um, uh, people can apply from anywhere in, in the United States. So we don't have a number of how many currently reside in hotels locally or out of living rooms and on couches? I don't, I don't. Yeah, so the, so the feedback that I've had um, within my capacity is that uh, a lot of times it's, it's hard to find a place uh, to house folks when they need a house, uh, when they need a home or when they need a shelter, uh, particularly when they have kids. Um, the last number, I don't, I don't know where the current number is, but typically it's around 200, 300 homeless kids um, in our public school system. That's Vacaville Unified only. Doesn't, I'm not sure what the numbers are for Travis Unified. I apologize uh, to those families in Travis. But um, uh, the fact is there's well over 100 uh, kids that have been displaced from their original home. Um, so it doesn't mean like the kids are not living in, they're not, they have shelter, just not uh, where they normally reside. So, um, so when, when a voucher, when there's, so right now, where, where's the gap? Is it these families? Is it, um, is it the funding gap or is it a, an actual place for them to move in gap? So the federal government provides the funding for the Section 8 program to subsidize rents for families. And uh, the Housing Authority does not get enough money from the federal government to fund every person who needs help. And I think that's common with a lot of our assistance programs, social assistance programs, and it's unfortunate. So that is a primary reason um, that not everyone who needs help can be served. And there is um, a difficulty in finding units at times uh, for people who do have a voucher uh, because the vacancy rate is, is low um, for rental uh, units. It could be apartments, houses, whatever the case may be that the voucher holder is responsible for going out, finding a place, um, you know, and like any other person looking for a rental unit, um, income counts, uh, your credit history, there's all the Rent, typical rental criteria factors that are involved as well that can cause a, a barrier to find housing. And so, um, so if someone has, uh, if there's a place, so normally uh, a landowner would have to accept or a landlord would have to accept someone that has on Section 8 voucher, is that correct? Yes, there is currently a law where um, landlords cannot discriminate based on Section 8 as an income source. So that's a, a good thing that came into law. So it would be, the decision would be based on other screening criteria, um, depending, you know, if they have more than one application, some are first come, first serve, you know, some have, you know, rating criteria. It depends on the policy of the particular landlord, how they screen their applicants. And uh, if 
the tenant themselves are, you know, adhering to the rules and aren't being good neighbors, um, there's ways to uh, remove them from the premises. Is that correct? Yes. Right. Or to cancel their, their lease. Doors. Yes. Um, so my question is, if uh, if a voucher is available and we have, if the funding comes available and we're limited on space, uh, what I'm asking is the developer to please reserve 10 units. Uh, they would give priority to Section 8 uh, individuals that, you know, uh, that would be good tenants uh, uh, for them. That's my request. So if there's Section 8, that it's not a loss of income. Uh, we're talking about families that um, most most of the time they're working, right? They're, they're trying to work for a better life. They're trying to get back on their feet, whatever the situation is. Uh, I forget the number, 191, was that uh, with, with kids? Um, I, uh, I feel much more comfortable if we can accommodate something for these families. Developer here. Thank you. Mr. Mayor, the developer is here. Would you like him to respond? Sure. Thank you. Good evening, Mayor and Council. I'm Richard Loki. I'm here on behalf of Green Tree. Um, I'm not sure I understood the question correctly. Um, are you, uh, Council Member Silva, are you asking whether it's, um, uh, whether there's the ability to accommodate Section 8 tenants in uh, apartment rental units in Green Tree? Yes. The, the answer is certainly yes. It would be. Can you give them I, priority? I can't speak to priority. Um, in, in essence, Taking units off the market um, and reserving them for for use exclusively by Section 8 is not something we could commit to. I do want to correct something that was asked and answered a moment ago, however. The apartment project that is the first component, the first phase of Green Tree, 240 of the 940 units, is one of either two or three higher density components that the project has. There will, it's at almost 24 units to the acre, three-story walk-up apartments. We have one more site that is at that same density where we expect that same type of product and have interest in another apartment project currently. Um, and we have two additional sites at 20 units to the acre that can accommodate two or three-story, again, apartments or townhouses so there will be other additional um, units of the same scale and price structure. I don't know if that helps answer, but it is a significant supply component. So would you be opposed to, why would you be opposed to having uh, 10 units uh, for the, out of the 230 units of apartments to be deed restricted? Okay, well, I'll give you two answers. Number one, um, I represent the master developer of the project, the owner and the party responsible for building the infrastructure, building and turnkeying the parks um, and building all of the streets, completing the grading, all of the environmental mitigation and turning over those super pads 
those nine residential sub neighborhoods to different home builders. I can't speak for those home builders. Um, and so far we only have one of them uh, under contract to build and that's for the apartment project. We have reached out nationally to other builders. The current economy um, has had a stifling effect as you might imagine on all of the for sale components in the market, but we're seeing a, a surprisingly strong interest in what's called build for rent. Um, housing that ties very nicely to the demand from the high tech and biotech industry, which is our principal market of this project. And um, we expect to see similar density components come along. So I can't speak for those builders. Um, I'm not contractually able to speak for them, but we did ask this question of our apartment builder directly and they, they um, could not commit to doing this because those rules are not in place in the marketplace today. They were not given to us as a criteria for design as the project was put through its design and its refinement. And were we to do that today, were we designing the project, or let me say it differently, if the project were required to accommodate an inclusionary component today, this project would be withdrawn and it would be redesigned and we would come back to you with more single family product that could absorb the cost differential to subsidize um, lower rent or rent restricted units. So it's a, it's a fair market competition issue that would put our apartment developer at a disadvantage. So is, um, is all that uh, correct for your opinion? Thank you, Councilmember Silva. Um, what Mr. Loki is explaining is that, is, as you all are aware, the city of Vacaville does not have an inclusionary housing ordinance. So when developers come here to design projects, they don't factor that into their business model. They don't factor it into the mix of units that they provide. Um, and is, this is true in communities that have such an ordinance, um, developers have to figure out how to make money on one section of the development to subsidize the other. Um, and because we don't have that ordinance, this project has not been designed to achieve it. Um, I am want to make sure the council knows that staff and actually Mr. Loki were well aware that an inclusionary ordinance is an interest of this council. It was identified in the housing strategy that came forward in June. It's been rolled into the housing element that was just presented to you all last month and is currently in the state of California's hands. So it's something that we'll be embarking on um, probably as soon as early next year. But at this time, it's not a requirement. So when a project comes forward and after six years is now told to consider it, um, I believe you're hearing hearing the reaction to that from the developer. <clears throat> well, um, so five, so section eight families would still have access, is that correct? Yes. Uh, but we can't guarantee that they have priority. Correct. So how would, how does the apartment gonna, how do we uh, decide who gets dibs to the apartments that are open? Um, I'm gonna give you my best guess this evening. Number one, they get just as much access as anybody else. Number two, your interest and that of the community has been heard. And to the extent that there are ways of encouraging that, both with this apartment project and going forward with the next phase as we talk with other builders, um, we certainly would want to push that issue as far as we could. I just can't promise it as a contractual obligation this evening. 
Is it something possible? Certainly. Thank you. Councilmember Sullivan. I uh, thank you, Mayor. I appreciate it. Um, so I, I think Aaron really just summed up kind of exactly what I'm thinking perfectly. So we have not done our due diligence or preparation, in my opinion, as a city over the last 40 years to really build the low income housing that we need, the tools to either build units or to build dollars, right? And so we have a lot of folks, whether they're low income seniors, it's our grandmas and our grandpas, it's our kids who get pregnant and have to drop out of the workforce and raise a kid. We don't have the inventory of housing we need here. And so all of the, I shouldn't say all, Several of the cities around us have built a variety of different tools over the last 40, 50 years. Whether that is every time you build a certain percentage of your fee goes towards low income housing fund, or every time you build X percentage of units goes to building low income units, particularly senior or kind of vulnerable folks. We haven't done that. And so we had a small fund of about a $3 million that we wiped out last year. We don't have that fund anymore. My problem in Vacaville is we have dozens, if not hundreds of people walking around with vouchers they have nowhere to live, right? And so we're gonna build this housing inventory, even though they have the rights and that they can apply for these property rentals, we know it won't happen because they'll run a variety of credit checks and income checks and all these different things, but these families will get boxed out and they'll be relegated to waiting with their vouchers just like they are now. And so I do feel really bad, Mr. Loki, because this is totally the ninth inning and it's totally late. I'm not blaming you guys at all. My problem is, and I've said this before, I've been on this council for four years now, and every time a project that I don't agree with comes across, I have to vote yes on it or keep it moving because it was approved 12 years ago or it was approved 20 years ago or approved 13 years ago. Someone back then didn't care about low-income housing. I care about it today. And my problem is this plot of land is massive. It's probably one of the last largest, most developable pieces of land we have in Vacaville. I'm so sorry that we're coming in last minute to the staff and Mr. Loki. But if we don't start building housing for our elders and we don't start building housing for our kids and folks that need a little extra help, the median household income in Vacaville is $76,000. People can't afford housing. We gotta do something. So the inclusionary zoning ordinance is on its way, which is great. It's just, it's taken 40 years to get here. I just, I don't feel comfortable voting for a project today this large that has no low income housing in this chunk of town. And so again, you know, Mr. Loki, thank you for all the extra effort. It wouldn't have been a whole lot of skin off the apartment builders back to rent 15 of these homes to section eight folks. They get the same amount of money. There's no difference. So I don't quite understand the math there. But again, you know, it's we're going out of our way on the park fees. It, it just really feels um, like a one way partnership. So that's that's my comments. Thank you. So <clears throat> my comments are, uh, you know, I was sitting on this council when I received a phone call from Green Tree Partners whoever was in charge back then. Uh, and they informed me that they were closing Green Tree down. Um, I was devastated. And I grew up here in Vacaville. That was my golf course. Um, and uh, I was devastated for the residents that lived out there because within that day, that week, water pipes were ripped out. The place died. Trees became dead. Things were falling over. It became a big fire mess. The whole thing was done, I felt atrociously. And I sat up here and said multiple times that I would not vote on a project until the residents of that area were happy with what was going on. Uh, my concern and my question tonight is, we do have a development agreement, but my concern is we have something that I feel the majority of residents are okay with. The majority of residents have called me. We put together multiple uh, um, committees and did hundreds of meetings to make sure that we hit everything that the residents were asking for out there. Um, 
My concern is if we change that zoning tonight, can't unring that bell. And if we have a development agreement, how long is that development agreement for? And then can city councils, and I, I kind of know the answer, but I'm gonna make it vocal tonight. City councils down the road, go ahead and come back and change things because, oh, it's you know 20 years later and now we wanted to do something different. Go ahead and I'll let you answer. Uh, briefly, this development agreement has a term of 15 years. Yeah. And if the developer wished to change it, they would have to come back to the city council, the future city council, um, and there'd be a public hearing and public notification and a lot of participation from the Leisure Town folks, I'm sure. In 15 years, that development agreement expires or it has to? It expires in 15 years, unless it were extended by an action of the council. Happens? Then it's then we revert to the general plan and zoning in place and the specific plan in place. And the city of Vacaville can't extend that. It would have to be mutual. Yes. Extend that. That's scary. Uh, and and the the other hard part about voting on this tonight is these folks have lived out there in a desolate, you know, dry, dead area. And when you go out there and talk to these residents and you look out their backyard, it's devastating. And they want something out there that's much prettier than what they have, which could be really anything. So it's it's tough because uh, I want to sit up here and do the right thing. I said that. I'd wait for the residents to be happy. I believe a majority of them are happy and they want to move forward with this. But I, I, I worry for them and for the future. If, you know, we've watched multiple developments sit for 15 years. And I would hate to see this change in 15 years and they don't get what they worked so hard for. So uh, I do have those concerns. Uh, I do have uh, a, a disappointment and uh, I'm talking to the brother back there um, from a local 180, the IBEW. Um, it's been, I don't know how many years that we've been working on this, how many meetings we've had. Uh, I would absolutely love to have some kind of labor language out there, but to come here tonight is uh, disappointing. Uh, you know, we could have came to me five years ago and said, hey, work with me. And we could have worked with the developer come tonight and say, hey, you know, I know this is your last night. Go ahead and stop it tonight uh, is very disappointing because I would love to have labor language, but you should have came to me five years ago and we could have sat down and made sure that happened. I would urge you to do that next time. Uh, you know, develops, developments take a long time. Get ahead of it and uh, talk to the developers and get with the council. Uh, I think they're all labor friendly up here and we want to make sure there's good labor standards out there. So uh, that would be my recommendation. Uh, after that I do have two more folks. I have Vice Mayor Stockton. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, you know, this this developer really went through some extra effort to make sure that the community, the Green Tree community that was most affected by this development was included in the process. I don't think that it's right to kind of change things at the 11th hour either. That being said, we also have a room full of people that are that are looking for help and resources with the amount of money um, that is being requested in addition to what was um, proposed at the last meeting. And so um, I would like to motion that we approve the project under the initial, uh, without the 1.2. Um, I, I don't disagree um, that, that we have the importance of trying to encourage, incentivize builders to build affordable housing. I think this council has been, been very um, clear on that with staff. But I also don't think that it's fair to the developer to do that on this project when they have gone above and beyond to make sure that the community that is existing there. But with that being said, I too am committed to making sure that our kids that grow up in this community and the folks that live here 
um, and have are going to have future families are able to afford to live here in the um, but I think that what we have now is what um, everyone's had ample in, you know time to include their say so in, in what this project looks like so I'd like to move with the original minus the 1.2 so basically what was brought up to us at the last do I have a second are, second are you good with that motion Yeah, so you're relying on the October 25th, yes. 2022 development agreement. Yes. On the question, go ahead. <clears throat> so I have a motion to second. Uh, is the, do we have a higher area within our town that has uh, more residents with Section 8 vouchers than others? Portion of Delta State. Camera, we're calling you up. <laughs> <laughs> Please report. She ran. <laughs> Come on to the mic. It's hot. Hello. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? It's hard to hear Absolutely. out there. Um, do we have certain areas in town that have a higher concentration of uh, units or families or individuals? Um, that are using their Section 8 vouchers. And the reason why I ask is I'm curious. So if what I'm hearing is there's no restriction to allow folks with Section 8 vouchers to access the place. So, um, but we do have deed restriction units throughout town. So my question is, do we have certain areas that have a higher concentration of individuals with Section 8? Um, without pulling the information and looking at it, um, I do know that... Um, the areas where uh, rents for multifamilies and even single families are deemed a little bit more affordable um, for our Section 8 tenants tend to be um, areas that they uh, choose to rent in because of the more uh, affordable prices. Um, so I, um, again, without looking at where um, our units are located, I can't say this neighborhood has X amount of percent or this neighborhood has, you know, a smaller percentage. Of concentration. Um, do we have deed restricted units for Section Eight in town? Or so, anything to that effect. So, our deed restricted units are not tied to the Section Eight program. They're deed restricted under other affordability agreements um, that the City of Vacaville has okay. uh, has. But and that again is separate from the Housing Choice Voucher Program and where those tenants choose to use their vouchers. And I, I agree with Doctor's comment. Okay, I have a motion second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Yes. Unanimous? No. Oh. No. You say no? Yeah. All right, we'll change that to a no. Not unanimous. Richie. Um, and I Richie have, is a no. I have two ordinance titles to read, and I yes, apologize please. as they are very long. No. So. <laughs> ordinance approving and adopting the Green Tree Specific Plan and amending Title 14, Chapter 14.09.040 of the City of Vacaville Municipal Code by amending the zoning map to change the zoning district designation from Parks and Recreation and Highway Commercial to General Commercial, Residential Medium, Residential High Medium, Residential High, Open Space, Residential Low, Residential Low Medium, <laughs> Mixed Use Overlay, Parks and Recreation and Public Facilities, APNs, 
and ordinance adopting the development agreement between the city of Acaville and Green Tree South LLC and Green Tree Properties LLC. That's it? That's all. <laughs> all right. Uh, I do have council member Richie. He'd like to make one two second comment. Maybe, maybe, maybe four. So to clarify that long list, my no vote would be for I wanted the as is with the 1.2 credit, but I'm a yes vote for Green Tree. So I'll make sure my no vote. Oh, was. sure. Yeah. Okay, thank you. All right. No, we're done. Yeah, nine, 9B. Oh, we're going to bring him back in. Yeah, thank you very much. That's up to the fire chief. Where's the fire chief? Fire chief, we good? Where are we going to move the chairs? <laughs> hey, take this one. What's purpose? Okay, Mr. City Manager, welcome back. We're going to move to 8B, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. Um, this is a revisitation of the Southtown Apartment Project. I'm going to introduce um, uh, Aaron Morris, our Community Development Director, and Paymon Bavon, um, who will give you a presentation on this project. Thank you, Mr. Mayor and members of City Council. Uh, this is an item that was con a continued consideration of two appeals of the Planning Commission's decision to approve the Southtown Apartments Project. Uh, this presentation will highlight the Council's discussion and direction provided to staff at the September 27th Council meeting and staff's re review of this direction in light of the Housing Accountability Act and will conclude with staff's recommendation. Brief background, uh, this project, which was filed under the Housing Accountability Act, SB 330, was filed initially in April of 22. Um, it was formally filed in May of 22. The city has held several meetings, a neighborhood meeting in June, the aforementioned Planning Commission meeting in August. Following the commission's approval of the project, we received two appeals and the September 27th City Council meeting, 
um, the city council considered the project. Uh, tonight, I don't have a detailed presentation of the project because that was done on September 27th. Also, there were detailed presentations by appellant number one, who is the applicant seeking to remove condition number seven, and appellant number two, uh, the Southtown neighbors seeking to deny the project. Uh, we received a lot of public comments at that meeting. Um, the council uh, closed the public hearing had a lot of discussion and ultimately it culminated in council providing direction to staff to bring back resolutions to deny appeal number one, that would be the developer's appeal, and to approve appeal number two uh, with findings of denial for the project. And this is where I say that staff heard you loud and clear, but I wanna walk through the next slides uh, to explain where we're at and why. So this project is subject to the Housing Accountability Act, which is a state law that was put in place in light of the housing crisis. So what the Housing Accountability Act says is if a project is consistent with applicable plans and standards, the city has to approve it. If the city wants to deny the project, the city has to find specific adverse impacts, and these have to be quantifiable, direct and unavoidable, and we have to have substantial evidence um, supporting Supporting those findings. Um, and so at the meeting, um, we listened to what the council said and there seemed to be three key concerns. Uh, traffic and circulation impacts the project might cause, parking impacts, and also how the project would affect evacuation routes. So I'd like to go through each of these briefly um, and then conclude. So the first council concern, and we heard a lot about this also from the public at Planning Commission and here, is a concern that the project would exacerbate existing collisions and injuries on Leisure Town Road. Um, and this is something where, as I discussed in the staff report, um, we evaluated the data that was provided by Ms. Minion, um, and the city staff also pulled data for a 10 and a half year period between January 1st of 12 and June 30th of 22. And the data does not support a finding that this project would cause an adverse impact. Um, after the staff report was published, um, actually as recently as today or yesterday, um, Ms. Minion provided additional data. And while it does document some collisions, both in Vacaville and in Fairfield, it again does not provide evidence supporting that the project would cause a substanti substantial adverse impact. Um, and, and, and the staff report breaks it down, but essentially between that, in that 10 year period, the city added 1200 housing units saw a very small increase in collisions per year, and none of the collisions appeared to be related to these new housing projects. Second council concern was about parking and about the parking design, the amount of the parking, and the concern that it could create a specific adverse impact. Um, and in this case, parking um, is prescribed by our Land Use and Development Code. This project meets the parking requirements under the letter of the law, where 467 are required. They are providing 468. Um, there's a concern from the council and from the public about allowing on-street parking, but our city code clearly allows um, residential projects to accommodate some of their parking on the street surrounding it. And there also was concerns about site distance obstructions. Our city code specifically prohibits those, and this project has been designed to keep those corners clear. So staff concluded that um, there wasn't substantial evidence really supporting that parking could be considered a specific adverse impact under the Housing Accountability Act. Then get to the third key concern, and this is the one about evacuation routes and would, would the new project um, exacerbate existing um, congestion during a mass evacuation event? So this is something where staff, we did consult with the Public Works Department and with the Fire Department. 
um, we couldn't find anything that would um, support a finding that this project would conflict with an emergency response plan. It's not in a fire, fire hazard severity zone. It doesn't require special uh, fire safety design features. It in fact eliminates a grass field, which could be considered a fire hazard. But further, a lot of the um, concern about fire evacuation routes is really in the process of being solved right now. And as noted in the staff report, there's a countywide effort looking at establishing evacuation areas. I checked in with the fire chief today and was informed that these new evacuation areas should be in place as early as spring of next year. Uh, so that concern um, related to this project, staff could not find a way to turn that into a finding for denial. So um, the unpopular message is that staff could not take the council's concerns and turn them into these findings of these adverse impacts under this state law. Uh, we couldn't uh, document sufficient evidence that this project would create these specific adverse impacts. And so that's why we concluded that denying this project, if the council did that, it would not be consistent with state law. And because there are no specific adverse impacts supported by evidence that the project would cause, um, the city really doesn't have a choice but to approve this project. Um, trying to be as direct as possible. Um, and then I just wanted to make sure that we did get to note that we did get quite a bit of correspondence before I talk about the recommendation. Uh, the applicant provided us with numerous items of correspondence that I think the council has seen. One of them was their case that the condition number seven, which requires that they participate in funding their public services should be removed because they've turned in a fiscal impact analysis that says that the project is, is not gonna cause a fiscal impact. Staff hasn't had time to fully review that. Um, it could be that there's a basis to reduce the amount of um, CFD fee that would go toward that this project would contribute to, but without the time to get into it, staff maintains that condition number seven is appropriate because it does provide in that second part, a little bit of flexibility on the amount of the, um, the fee that the developer would pay. So, um, and we did get some additional comments from um, other members of the public, um, no one supporting the project and everyone expressing concerns about different aspects of the project. So with that, staff's recommendation is based on the Housing Accountability Act that the council should deny appeal number one and appeal number two and reaffirm the Southtown Moody EIR and approve the plan development uh, for a permit for the Southtown apartments subject to the conditions of approval, including condition number seven. Thank you, I'll open it up to public. I want to be the closer. I'm going to do these things. I don't, I don't have five, Step forward. Hello, my name's Alicia Minion, and I'm the appellant, appeal number two. Um, so first, what I want to start out with is, you know, threats of a lawsuit should not get in the way of you doing the right thing. Approval of my, of my appeal was the right thing to do. When both the residents and the developers are threatening lawsuit, this means that the staff has not done a good job. There's been threats from other third parties like Yimby, but they don't know the facts. They don't live here. The developers from Texas, they don't live here. And I think what you need to remember, Council, is that staff doesn't run the city, you do. And we, the, in my appeal, I provided findings that substantiate and warrant the approval of my appeal. 
The other thing is I hear staff keep saying the Accountability Act, SB 330, SB 330. No, they're conflating two things. Planning Commission made two decisions. One was to reaffirm the EIR and one was to approve a plan development. The EIR stands on its own. Under SB 330, you, if the project requires an EIR, then there needs to be one. This 2004 EIR, the staff is saying it's okay to apply the 2004 EIR under old standards to a project that has today's standards. They're disparately different. That makes the EIR dead. Ask the staff, they know that EIR is dead for that reason alone, my appeal approval, the approval that you voted on is correct. Number two, I provided you findings along with Wendy Brecken. These are findings that you make. So after the appeal is approved, your own muni code requires the next step is that findings be made. Those are the findings that form the basis of your approval of my appeal. If the developer doesn't like it, they can work with the staff and come back and address our concerns. They could reduce the units, put all the parking on site, but they don't want to. So then I guess they'll have to let a judge decide. But you made the right decision and, and I gave you the proof. And the other thing too is Senate Bill 330, if you look at the developer's application, why don't you ask yourself why the project description, specifically parking, doesn't match the planned development uh, application for design review that was submitted supposedly on April 12th. There's a lot of, we, we were just deceived from day one. This entire process, our neighbors, our residents have been deceived. You've been deceived. We have provided you many letters and facts and that show that we were deceived. And this is plain wrong. And so just remember, the EIR is dead. It's inadequate for that reason alone that substantiates the approval of my appeal. Mayor, how much time do I have left? I think I give you 10, 10 minutes, right? For the, oh, I get extra time today? Do I or do I not? I don't know. I did. Okay, that. that's amazing. Can I? Okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> I didn't know you were giving me extra time. <laughs> it was my understanding tonight everybody was three entitled minutes. to three minutes. Okay. Oh. Time. I'll, I'll let you wrap up because that's my fault. I should have checked with my lawyer. Oh, okay. And Please I didn't know. Okay, okay. No, sir. <laughs> okay, so, so I, I did all, I'm just hoping that you read my email. I provided the findings. That is the next step that you should make. And also, I disagree with the staff. The traffic report alone, those, those accident reports, is another reason. Unacceptable amount of accidents, 342 accidents on Leisure Town Road, 76 accidents on Vanden, the EIR required that you that the staff assess cumulative impacts for traffic. That has not been provided. Okay. They had every opportunity okay. to do it and they didn't. It's Thank wrong you. to relitigate this. Thank you. Okay. All right. right. You Thank you. Don't relitigate it. You. It's illegal I'm and it's kill wrong. Your mic. Thank you, ma'am. Um, thank you for being able to speak here tonight and for coming and representing, you know, the public in Vacaville, because that's what you're doing. And I also feel like your instincts were correct the first time. 
I, I work in science. We talk the jargon of science, evidence-based science, and it trumps clinical experience. Evidence-based science originally was clinical experience. Anybody who took the trip down Leisure Town Road tonight into a sea of bright lights that they almost had to put knows that the traffic analysis was not adequate. You can't look at Leisure Town Road, and in fact, in one of the statements on the traffic analysis, it identified project problems further down Leisure Town Road. That's where I live, in a small neighborhood to the east of Leisure Town Maple uh, Road. You can't enter or exit. I live in a 2.5 acre rural residential neighborhood, and that means as a rural residential, you can have a residence and an agricultural cottage industry, which I have on my property. I've had clients say to me, how do you get in and out of your road? So in their analysis of the traffic, they said, we're talking about traffic right here by this apartment complex. We're not gonna be responsible for those accidents further down the road. I've driven on Leisure Town Road on a Sunday when 80 West is backed up and it looks like the road warriors. I actually have called the police and said, you need to get somebody over here. I just saw someone passing southbound traffic in the northbound lane. So the traffic is real and it's a problem and it's only gonna get worse and we are supposed to put up with it while we're waiting for these projects to be developed so that eventually it can be a four lane road with turn lanes and then people with livestock trailers can get on and off my road. That was my one problem. The science, you know, you can use data to show what you want. If you don't look at existing county roads where the traffic that can't fit on Leisure Town drives out into, like my neighborhood, you're not gonna know that that's traffic that's being caused by this project. My other point about evacuation, twice having to evacuate livestock from fires at Cement Hill, and coming down Highway 80 with evacuated animals from Rockville in my trailer, I have been stopped once for two hours at the traffic circle on Vanden. At that time, I had a person in my truck with me, the owner of the livestock we were attempting to evacuate, and we were all stuck in that traffic circle for two hours. She was starting to get panicky, which is what you feel when you're trying to be evacuated and you're watching a fire come over the hill. I had worked as a forest fire fighter uh, for the US Forest Service, I had a little bit of common sense about how we were gonna get through it, so I wasn't panicking. I had my daughter in the car with me again on, man on 80. I got evacuated in 2020 off onto Manual Campus. I was held up, so CHP take us off the freeway, then uh, Fairfield Police want to get us, sorry, off of Manual Campus. Seven hours in a trailer with my daughter. So evacuation is real. It should be something that's planned before an emergency, because once it happens, nobody figures out Thank what to do. Thank you very much. Next speaker. If you guys can make your way all the way down here, that way we don't have to. Okay. If I could give just a point of privilege on a different subject. I wanted to thank you, Mayor, for your service to your city. Mr. Ritchie, I couldn't vote for you. I met you while you were campaigning, remember? Yeah, you're doing a great job. We're proud to have you. Um, as you know, I helped you campaign for city council. I'm proud of all the work you've done. And many of our council members, I haven't been down for a while. Thank you for your service to our country and to our uh, city. Uh, I've been here over 40 years. I'm a Teamster retired, lucky truck driver, two million safe driver miles. Had a couple accidents, people bumped into me. Luckily, I didn't hurt anyone and I survived and loved my job. 
I have seen city after city traveling from this distribution center all the way to Monterey, Carmel. I delivered San Jose, Santa Rosa, Fresno, Tahoe. I love chaining up in the snow. I've done it all. I've seen these cities make these mistakes time and time again. Now I come before you to thank you for your service and whatever you decide to do. I thought I'd be campaigning for you for supervisor because you're, you're a natural, but I love that you're putting your family first. We all appreciate it. You gave us good service and all of the city council people do. So I just wanted to thank you personally and I appreciate it. On the Southtown project, um, could you put the project up like I asked you to? She said she needed permission from the mayor. Anyway, I'd like to see it because I don't know the don't name of the it. street. You don't have I it. don't have it in the slide deck because okay. this was focused on. Build a picture for us. Come on. We, we don't have it. All right. Okay, so I'm this morning because I had to take a vet to Travis, one of my buddies for dental surgery and drive him home. And I have this shirt on because it's Vets Month. And thank you for going down and honoring our vets. I couldn't go there because I was at the Dixon Cemetery. You're going to run out of time, brother. I want you to get to your point. Okay. Anyway, they don't have the map. So the project site, and I, the only reason I know about it, I have a girlfriend over there 13 months. And I live here for, you know, over here. So safety is the concern. Like you said at the last meeting, it just doesn't fit the neighborhood. I'm quoting you. I'm not voting it because it doesn't fit the neighborhood. Quote, roll the tape. It's a safety thing, and I'll tell you why. Redstone comes up to the light, okay? So you have this big project with way too many kids that are going to live there. You think they're going to stay contained? They're going to be running around riding their bikes and their scooters, and they're going to get run over on the NASCAR Leisure Town Expressway. I was there this I was there this morning and point of privilege because I gave the comments to the council. I know, but I can't. You I let can't. her go for six. I, well, I, I just want to make one last important make it point. Quick, it's safety. There, there's not a hundred people here. There is a hundred people. So, <laughs> Mayor. Please just wrap it up, please. Yeah, Mayor. With the, the safety issue and this, they just put a big fence all around that. You know what they did? Why did they do that? I'd like to staff I'm gonna, to answer that. I thank you for your time. Okay. Next. Please reject this project as it is. Next, please. There's not enough parking. It's dangerous to the community. Mr. Mayor, Council, people of the community, thank you. Um, this is the first time in the five years that I've been living in Vacaville that I've had a chance to actually address anything, and this one's kind of particular to my needs because it is Southtown. I bought one of the last houses off of uh, Sitka Drive, which is um, adjacent to this project. Um, if I was to quote a few things I've heard tonight about following or trying to honor the will of the people, so far I haven't come across a single neighbor that seems to be too inclined to want to see a three-story apartment project show up in our backyard. Um, about uh, picking the right product for the people or the right area. I don't see how a three-story apartment complex fits in an area full of two-story houses, single-family homes. Uh, I have two small kids, so my have, I do have a natural concern for the safety of them, of a child of a law enforcement family, and uh, to know that traffic is going to become a concern. The findings might address the fact that there's no 
existing concern, but when you start adding a whole bunch of different housing units that are high density, even more than what we have now, um, I fear that we're gonna have a greater situation there. Additionally, I mentioned that there's no fire concern. Well, I think that grass is a little bit more easy to manage than a bunch of people um, and apartments that uh, will add to the risk. And then uh, just generally it's, um, I don't, I, again, I don't see how it fits the neighborhood, the situation with uh, the will of the people and um, I'll keep mine short. So thank thank you. you for your time. Thank you. Good evening. I think I just wanna make a new friend. Uh, let's come over here. Um, we've already talked through this multiple times, all of us. Um, you've heard all the you know residents that really um, how they feel about it. We thought we were a part of a project that was pulled out from underneath us and um, and then thrown this at us at the last minute. Uh, and there's been contention. We've been a part of the whole process as as long as we've been allowed. Um, Councilmember Ritchie, you brought up with Green Tree how. Um, the, uh, um, hold on, let me go back to my note. Uh, Green Tree, you made a point to say apartments uh, first, so everyone knows what is going in. Uh, it's been brought up plenty of times before. Um, that, that is a very good point. Green Tree is also proposing less apartments in our sm a much smaller lot uh, next to our uh, development. Um, in no way did the ER, ER even get brought up again by staff. Staff is, uh, is absolutely not listening to anything that you're saying, anything that we're saying, and they're making the facts work in their favor because I believe that they were colluding with the developer this whole time to make this process go through. Um, they, they have absolutely hated this project or hated, hated our objection to it. They've supported the project and they've done everything they could to be able to support that. Um, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of showing up to these meetings uh, to hear about another developer trying to force their way in. You know, uh, um, this same developer, the same representative for whoever is building these these apartments now, um, wants to bully everybody around and say, "Well, you're going to do it because he thinks he owns the city. He thinks he owns everybody up there. He thinks he owns um, uh, the right to be able to do whatever he wants." And you know what? He's going to keep doing that. I can't imagine that he's going to want to keep doing that after this whole process is over. Um, especially if there's a lawsuit. Um, we talked about safety um, right there on Burgundy and Redstone, which is right at the corner of the thing. That's where my kids meet for the bus. That's where they meet um, to get their rides. That's where uh, um, it, it's, you know, it's not a really safe uh, turn uh, out of there. Um, and, and then the buses could find a different way to, to meet, but that's, that's what's worked in, in the bus uh, route. Um, you can add another accident, I'm guessing. Chief Watson, I could tell you there was an accident. I'm just, I'm assuming I didn't see the accident, but on Alamo and Leisure Town, again, on the way home from work, there was glass all over the whole road, um, looking like it was from a car accident. Um, so we're adding multiple cars. I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up, I lived um, uh, backed up to Leisure Town for a long time. I jumped the fence multiple times to, um, uh, for car accidents right there at Eulatus and Leisure Town. It just happens all the way along it because it's not built uh, for the amount of numbers that are going in. So I just want you to please, Keep your word. You've already denied the project. You proved uh, Elisha's appeal. Please just do that. And thank you for your time. Thank you. Sir. Good evening, Council, Mayor. Uh, Longtime resident of Vacaville, 40 plus years. Lived on Burgundy Street for the last six. Nothing's changed since September. When you guys voted 7 0 to deny this project, nothing's changed. 
they haven't come back, changed the way the traffic's planned is the EIR is 20 years old. There's no new traffic plan to address the situation. Uh, you spoke about Green Tree, the developer worked with the community, worked with the residents to get something they wanted. This developer has never worked with us. They've never once come out and said, hey, what do you guys want here? What, what would look good here, right? I, I don't wanna look at a tubular steel fence out in my front yard to look in people's front yards or backyards or whatever it is. It's just, it's not a good project. It's not a good fit. I urge you to keep your word from the last meeting, 7-0, vote no, deny this project. Thank you. Next. Hello, Mr. Mayor, Council. Um, my name is Robin Sickler. I live in Redstone and have been there since our house was a frame and we designed that house from the ground up and we've loved living there. Not so sure we're gonna love living there anymore if this goes through. Um, back in September, you very wisely voted unanimously to shut this project down and we urge that you continue to do that. City staff wants quantifiable numbers. So I've got some math for you on the parking. From the from city council or from city of Vacaville in 2021, uh, it's vehicle data from the census.gov. Um, occupied housing units with no vehicles available is 3.4%. Occupied housing units with one vehicle available is 26.6%. Occupied housing units with two vehicles available is 36.4%. And with three vehicles, it's 33.6%. So when you apply those percentages to the 236 units they are planning to put in our front yard, then you've got a total of 472 parking spaces needed. The allotted parking spots are 468 according to this project, and, that is, and that's supposed to include guest parking. The developer went on record to state that they are assuming all apartment residents will use their garages and driveways should, in, in the units that get them uh, before parking on the street, which we all know is not going to happen. We have three cars at our house. We have a three car tandem garage. One car goes in our garage. The rest of it is to store all of our crap that doesn't fit inside of our house, which I know everybody else is the same way. Um, so per the Vacaville 2021 census data, 472 parking spots are needed to cover residents only and does not consider guest parking, which per the staff report issued today requires another 79 spots. That does not, uh, that doesn't count upright. So we are short 83 spots for this project, according to the data from the city of Vacaville and the census and the vehicle data. So I am urging you to please not approve this and go back on your word from September. We are imploring you, this is a terrible fit for our little small neighborhood. There is one exit out one street and one exit out the other. The traffic situation, they're not even taking into consideration all of the homes that are being built to our side as well, off of Redstone. There's 2,000 or so houses going in right there that are gonna add to the probably 750 to 1,000 residents, individual people who are going to live in these 236 units in our front yard. Not to mention all of the homes that are being built off of Leisure Town the other direction. All of that's gonna create an absolute mess when it comes to traffic and parking. And I urge you to please continue with your no vote. Thank you. Hello, Council, uh, Mayor. Uh, my name is Paul Wilkins. I also live in the Redstone community. Uh, I noticed um, the traffic accident report that they had up there uh, spanned, I think she said two or 10 years, but they only had three years worth of data in 19, or in 2019 to 2022. That was during COVID. 
there wasn't a lot of traffic on that road during because we were shut down. So that's something to consider because if that's the only data that they used, they didn't take it, they're not taking into account the increase of the housing within that area. Yeah, I just want you to consider that in your decision on voting no for this particular Thank you question. very much. Thank you. Next speaker. Uh, good evening, uh, council, staff, and public. Um, my name is Roberto Valdez. I'm a longtime resident. I've lived here at least, I think, about 34, 35 years. Uh, and I can tell you I've been coming to the city council since probably 1998. I've lost track. Uh, but tonight, I, I'm compelled to, to talk to you uh, to give my point of view of what I, I'm observing here. Number one is that whether you're leaving or staying here in this council, or whoever in your staff, where that you listen to the public uh, comments, especially those people who are who are living there at that moment. Luckily, I don't live there, but I've seen all the development going throughout the years. And this project, so, uh, South Town, it's just one of the many projects that you ambitiously have pushed. I don't care whether you've been here or not. You need to educate yourself if you haven't been here. You have pushed to develop the to cancel the whole purpose of our reliever road, whether it's Fandan or whether it's uh, Leisure Town, you know, um, you're, you're really doing a great job of, of destroying. My suggestion to you, all of you, the next time you see one I-80 uh, uh, congested with traffic, take a drive over by Leisure Town and you'll see how the traffic, it doesn't take much for to get stuck in Vacaville. And I'm telling you, I'm speaking from years of experience, I will never forget December 5th, 2005, when we had a big flood here and it was awful. I couldn't even get to work in Oakland, you know. So it's, it's, it, get real with it, you know, listen to them. The other thing I wanna say to you is that, and because of the uh, three minute thing, um, um, I'm very proud of our, <laughs> of our residents who have come today and who have told you that they are concerned about, uh, uh, what was it, uh, uh, emergency evacuation, uh, traffic congestion, and also community safety. Think about that. Think about that before you approve this, before you approve the EIR. Yes, you have a process to go through and people can decide, but you need, to, you, I'm very proud that they, they're, they're questioning that. This has been going on for the past, 20 years or more, and it's gonna get worse as we get more development on, uh, on the reliever roads, I, uh, Vanden Road, Leisure Town, all the way to uh, uh, Fairfield. We're not a, an island. We can't just build and build and build and not think about the consequences. And you, each of us, if you really f care about the community, you should think about that before you, you put in your vote and, and figure out, well, oh, well, we don't have the roads, but we can build more and more houses. No, please uh, listen to the, and I'm, again, everybody here should question where we're going. Thank you. Because we much. all live here. Thank you. Thank I'm gonna, you. I'm gonna close public comment, bring it to council. <clears throat> council member Silva. Um, can we staff please clarify on the uh, different topics brought up about parking issues and then also the data, elaborate a little bit more on the traffic data. And time frame, and particularly COVID. 
Uh, thank you, Councilmember Silva. Um, it's in the staff report. Uh, the traffic data is from a 10.5 year period beginning on January 1st of 2012 and ending June 30th of 2022. So the data I presented was for a 10 and a half year time period that predated COVID by a lot. On the topic of parking, um, there is in fact census data that articulates how many cars are per residence um, and the city's parking standards are probably based on that kind of data and more, but essentially we have established fixed parking requirements in our land use and development code. And under the Housing Accountability Act, if the developer meets those fixed standards, um, there is not a basis to deny the project based on parking concerns. Um, I did wanna, if it's okay, touch on the EIR. Staff did evaluate whether this project is within the scope of the original Southtown EIR, and we found that it did. Uh, that was discussed more at length in the staff report for the, the September 27th meeting. Uh, but staff does not see the CEQA as the basis for, for denying this project. Um, and I, there was one other, I brought up, but if it comes up again, I'll, I'll hit it. Okay. Um, so what, what would be the amount of accidents to trigger such, uh, such concern, a safety concern? Uh, the state hasn't offered us any standards, but there is our city traffic engineer, almost as if she was ready to jump up here. Gwen Owens, Public Works. Um, <clears throat> so basically there's an industry standard based upon the type of street that you're on. So if you're on a local residential where you have your driveways fronting on, there's not a lot of traffic, so you don't expect a lot of collisions. But if you're on an arterial that's a four-lane road that has a lot of vehicles on it, you expect a higher number of collisions. So collisions are actually measured in millions of vehicle miles traveled. So it takes into account the length of the segment, also takes into account the amount of traffic, number of cars you have on the segment. So basically, based upon um, an arterial, a four-lane arterial, uh, the expectation is it would be about 2.3 million, million vehicle miles, uh, collision per million vehicle miles. So when we actually put together the data, what we did was we looked at pre-construction of Jepson, construction of Jepson, and post-construction of Jepson because of the fact that you have three different types of scenarios <clears throat> and roadway conditions. And including all the collisions, including alcohol-related, which are things, collisions that we cannot uh, design out of, um, uh, pre-collision, excuse me, pre-Jepson um, construction, it was 0.76. Uh, during construction, it was 1.12. And post-Jepson uh, uh, construction, it was 0.86. So all of those are below the 2.3 collisions per millions of vehicle miles traveled. For, the, for Leisure Town. For right. Leisure Town Road, correct. Um, but that, that, uh, so the post Jepson, what, I'm sorry, what, do you know what years those are? Um, the post Jepson is 0. 0.86. I'm sorry, what years? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's from May uh, 1st, 2019 until June 30th of 2022, because it was April, May, of 2019 when Jepson was completed. Did we see an upward trend post 20, uh, 2021 to, to current? Um, well, it goes from 1.76 pre 1.12 to 0.86. It, it's very minimal, the pre-construction versus post-construction. Yeah, but from, um, so when things started opening up from COVID, uh, we'll just say 
uh, beginning of 2021 to current, do we see any trend? We, uh, so we uh, have over 300 collisions. So we had to pull them out. You know, first we have to vet them because there's a section of Leisure Town Road when we pull the collisions that are not part of this because it's by midway. So that's not really part of what we're talking about. Um, we didn't stratify it post 2021. I thought you said you had 300 collisions. Oh, sorry, 300, about 300 collisions in total, oh, more than 300 collisions in total. So it's a lot, it. what it is is a lot of raw data, and to slice it and dice it gets kind of complicated. All right, um, thank you. And then, so I just want to clarify, like, what, what, thank you, Gwen, appreciate it. Um, what's the issue with townhomes? Uh, my understanding, like, the original discussion was that this would be something that would be ownable. And like for me, like for example, you know, for, uh, you know, if, if the goal is to help, like when we talk about NIMBY um, or applying that term, like for me, the goal to help people get out of poverty is to be able to build equity and home ownership. And I still haven't got a clear answer to understand how you, if you can have ownable condos or ownable townhomes, um, how, why that doesn't supplement the ability to have market rate rentals to where individuals can't build equity. So I don't know if you can help me understand why can't we have townhomes? My understanding is the residents were informed about. I can just, I'll answer um, from my expertise as staff. Um, I can't answer for the developer, but this site has general plan designation, a zoning designation that allows you can use different terms, multifamily housing. It can allow um, high density housing. And this developer has chosen to come in and they've chosen to use the Housing Accountability Act process to propose the project that's before you. Um, and staff doesn't have control over that and you don't have control over that, neither does the public. But that is the, the project they're bringing forward is an apartment project and they filed this under SB 330. Um, so I don't see an opportunity for us to um, change the type of housing they're proposing because of how they brought it to the city. Vice Mayor Roberts. Uh, Vice Mayor Stockton. <laughs> um, thank you for the presentation. Uh, thank you for everybody that came here to talk. Um, I know that uh, it sounds like there are a lot of very stringent uh, things that we can consider with whether or not to approve or not approve this project. And so, uh, but that doesn't mean that your comments go unheard. Um, I recognize that staff has individually concluded that each of these things alone does not um, come, in their opinion, to the standard um, of warranting us denying this project. But um, I believe in our last meeting, collectively, the council agreed that they do. Um, I haven't heard anything tonight that's convinced me otherwise, um, that collectively um, these things don't uh, pose a safety concern, um, a uh, concern regarding evacuations. Um, I'm a first responder. My job during fires is to go and assist with evacuations. And I can tell you it took three to four hours for me just to get to work to a patrol car while fire was coming and burning. So, um, you know, I think this is a conversation that maybe does need to go to a judge. My understanding is there's no existing case law revolving around this subject. Um, I, I think that staff has given us their opinion. They've go, gone over the data that they believe is relevant towards informing us so that we can make the best decision that we possibly can. But I think collectively, um, 
it still remains my opinion that that this project um, presents some pretty serious concerns that I think um, may have to be litigated um, to determine whether or not they're enough, but um, certainly there are enough Okay, Council Member Roberts. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I know the evacuation plan is, is coming, but it's one of those things that until it's finished and we see the results of it, we can't really make a decision on how this and other developments in the area will affect it. Um, another piece of information is that with, in reality, this one development, like the traffic it produces, doesn't matter. You have to look at the aggregate of all the future developments. That there's like half a dozen other ones going in off Leisure Town. So I feel we need to start doing more predictive analysis on what the total amount of traffic will be caused after all the developments are completed, because that's what really matters in the end. Because uh, there's one here, one there, and yeah, if we don't look at the big picture, um, yeah, we'll, we may cause even bigger problems down the road if there's several thousand other houses going in, because uh, that's, you're probably looking at double that amount of cars and people driving. Like I said before, like growing up my house between my mom, my stepdad, my sisters, we had five vehicles in one house because we all had jobs going different directions, different schedules. And just the other day I was trying to pull out a stone gate, make a left on Leisure Town. I couldn't do it, I sat there for 10 minutes. So I eventually made a right and went all the way through town because uh, there's no way to turn left at commute time. Um, other pieces, I, I think the staff is starting to get the idea that, yeah, we are a data-driven council, especially myself. And so just looking at like groups of time, especially when there's an anomaly like COVID, so you can't really include 2019 and 2020 in that data. And we really need to see trends, like what happened 2019, what happened 2020, 2021, and now. And so that way we can see if there's any trends and increases um, and also what was in 2018, 2017, probably saw a dip when 2019, they shut down everything down. Cause I know driving out to Ranch Cordova is where it'd get on the freeway. There'd be like two other cars driving all the way to Ranch Cordova. And yeah, it's very odd feeling, but every street was like that, uh, in the city. And so pulling data from those specific years, I suspect there's very, very minimal traffic collisions, uh, on those roads at that point in time. And Jepson Parkway is not finished. Uh, so there's a couple sections that need to be finished on that as well. So yeah, just some thoughts and considerations for the for that. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Wiley. Uh, I have a couple of questions and just observations too. When we're talking about traffic, when we talk about pre-Jepson, during Jepson or post-Jepson, I think it would also be good to look at how many houses and other buildings were there because that's the big issue was how many people are now living along that area and how many more are now going in as the Vanden Meadows and all that is being built, our Vanden Villages or whatever it is that's being built out there now. And then I also wanna know um, when you say, well, it's not right there at that complex, so it's not really caused by it, but if it happened at the roundabout or if it happened up at I-80 or if it happened where the woman's trying to get off of her road up there too. That's all impacted because of the 470 cars that are leaving that these apartments. So what is the, the distance that you would consider it being impacted from, from that development? Um, and then also the comments about the fire area, because one email I saw today said that the area just east of that was a high, high 
danger area. So I don't know if that's correct or not. Um, not right there, but just east of Leisure Time said it was a high danger area. Um, and then the other thing with parking, we're talking about resident parking and guest parking. I wonder if there's a, like worker parking because there's the maintenance people since it's since it's rental, there's gonna be all the maintenance people and the people that are in the office and things like that. Is that part of this count? And are there charging spots? Because now with electric, we always have electric charging spots for apartment buildings. So is that part of this count of the building as well? And then uh, one question about the 330 requirement. So does that matter whether it's ownership or rental? That's a question. And then we talk about, I mean, you said that 2004 ERR was still valid, which is hard to believe because it was so old and written before all those houses were there. Um, and I think that said that the height of the buildings were supposed to be 35 feet, but now the current plan has the height of the buildings at 46 feet. So is that, it seems to me that's a factor a change in ERA, EIR, um, just with the height of those buildings as well. So those are a couple comments that I had. I'll start with some of them. Perhaps our traffic engineer can answer others. Regarding the EIR, a change in building height would not necessarily trigger new CEQA impacts. And so part of looking at whether an old EIR is still valid is looking at what circumstances have changed in the community that have not been addressed by the EIR, whether the project's consistent with the vision of the EIR. Um, there's a lot of legal analysis that goes into it actually. We spent a fair amount of time looking into this, but the building height is an example of the form of the building can change slightly, but it doesn't necessarily trigger new environmental impacts that were not contemplated when that site was evaluated as a multifamily high density housing site. Um, regarding the charging spots, um, there's um, existing building code and a new one you'll be reviewing tonight it still requires that developers pre-wire a certain number of parking spots to become charging stations, uh, but I don't believe any are proposed um, to be installed as part of the project. Um, but they will have to pre-wire them in compliance with the California Building Code. So they're not some residents. In, in multifamily that have them actually up and running, they're typically interspersed in shared areas because it's recognized that multiple residents are going to use them, but that's... And then regarding SP 330, um, there is no nothing in state law that provides different rules for ownership housing or rental housing. It's really if a project qualifies as a housing development project under SP 330, which is virtually any housing project where the developer files under that title, um, then the law applies to that project. There are additional, um, additional um, I guess, benefits, if you will, if it's an affordable housing project, but there, that's not even that much greater than what the state gives to these market rate projects. And then with regards to the distribution of how far out you look, basically when we do a level of service traffic impact study, um, what we do is we look at the AM and PM peak hour, which is seven to nine, four to six, and we pick the peak, you know, the AM peak hour and the PM peak hour and we um, evaluate that. So what we do is we identify what the trip generation is from our Institute of Tra Transportation Engineers trip generation manual. For um, this particular project, because it has 236 units, in the AM peak, it would generate about 94 trips, and that's coming and going. And in the PM peak, it would generate 120 trips, that's coming and going, you know, entering and exiting. Then when we actually do a traffic impact study, 
what we do is there's a distribution of the traffic because there's different ways to get from point A to point B or people are going from point A to point C, et cetera. And so when you get down to a certain number, 20 trips, that's 20 to 50 is kind of when you'd stop uh, having that distribution go out. Typically for um, traffic impact studies, 100 would be the threshold, the lowest threshold that in the AM or PM peak hour that you would even look at it because when we had level of service as our threshold in the general plan as opposed to now we have BMT, um, basically it's if you go from acceptable to unacceptable or if you're in an unacceptable level of service and you add more than five seconds of delay, you need at least 100 trips to be even close to tripping any type of threshold. So um, with this project being 94 and 120, they're kind of very close to the very um, minimum of what we would ever, ever look at. So does that answer your question? I, I was asking, looking for the distance from the, the apartment building, because I thought you said, well, that happened, so that wasn't, a, that wasn't from the apartment. You couldn't say that it was from the apartment because it was farther up the road or farther down the road. So are you talking about collisions? Right. Okay, so with the collisions, what we did is we pulled collisions all the way from Vanden all the way up to uh, where it's the I-80 ramps. And in your staff report, there's a colored graphic uh -huh. that actually shows the location of where they are and whether or not it's non-injury, injury, or fatality. So we looked at that entire segment because um, I, th I think part of the issue is not just the you know 236 units with regard to traffic, right. it's the other traffic that's out there. We've built the first phase of Jepson, we're putting out the second phase of Jepson early 2023, should be constructed 2024, about like 18 months. And that those improvements will go from Elmira all the way up to Eulatus, I believe, is where they go up to. Um, you're actually a little bit north of Eulatus. So, um, and we're looking to, once again, find money to complete <coughs> that remaining stretch. You're good? Okay. We'll go to Council Member Sullivan. Hey, Mayor. Um, so I, I actually, my comments are very similar to Council Member Stockton, so I'm not gonna repeat kind of the, the same sentiment. But what are our options? Uh, I mean, I know staff are making a recommendation tonight. I really like to uphold the original uh, motion that we made last council meeting. I know staff are saying, no, we're putting you in an awkward spot. And I mean, no disrespect whatsoever, but I am not interested in, in changing my mind from last meeting. What are our options to move forward with that proceeding motion? Do we, how do we go to court? Like what's, what do we do next if we're not satisfied with the option presented tonight? Um, I will provide an initial response and then look over to our city attorney to provide any further advice. But honestly, um, the state law has been tested in other jurisdictions where cities have denied projects um, kind of in defiance to state law. And um, they have been sued, um, not necessarily just by Yimby Law. That's one potential litigant that's um, sent us their letter of interest in our city, um, but by others, um, and um, they haven't won. Uh, and again, I, I'm not the legal expert, but the risk is um, by taking an action that is um, not consistent with state law, you'd be exposing the city to potential, you know, significant fines from the state as well as all the attorney's fees. And it, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how you would win, <laughs> but that's why you have a, a lawyer over there to give you that advice. So yes, you can deny the project, um, and maybe by simple motion, you could um, approve the project as recommended by staff because we think the law says you have to. I think those are two 
So there's no like finding period. Like it doesn't go to the state and they say, oh, actually you're, you're wrong. You're incorrect here. It automatically goes to litigation. The city will make a decision and we'll post a notice of determination that the decision has been made. And then there's a time period during which um, we could be sued. So there's no appeals process that's- no, The appeal of a council decision is through the courts. It's, and there's no other process for that. Okay, thank you. I believe we go back to Councilmember Ritchie. Yeah. Oh, I will, I'm so sorry. I will add one thing is that if the council is inclined to uh, deny the project, and I do have the same concerns as our community development uh, director, um, you know, state law is, is pretty strict. And I think we all have, um, you know, some of the, we share the concerns of, of the neighborhood and we understand them and staff took them very seriously. And that's why they went back to see if they could support the findings that are required by state law and came back with the, the data that they provided you. Um, with that said, if the council is inclined to deny the project, then you're required to make uh, certain findings and you would have to make those findings with, with any motion of, of denial. Councilmember Ritchie. Okay, so I heard the crowd uh, loud and clear. I, I'm gonna stay away from tra tra traffic. Um, that's something that I think point is made very clear. Um, I understand 330 very well. Maybe it's because the line of work I made while not up here and understand place and position we're in. So I leaned over to, to Councilman Silva. I just want to make sure it's not a private conversation. What I was talking about Silva was- I told I, you a joke. What? I, I wanted, I, I listened to him with what he said and the passion he had and real estate and home ownership is a pathway to family wealth and wealth creation. And it is something that, that builds a lot of value and wealth in the community and, and empowers. Um, I'm inclined to find a way to delay this 330 allows for ownership and rent. I think there's one option we haven't discussed yet. We can't control traffic. I, I, I'm not gonna get in that the landline. That's above my pay grade. But parking's one element that can shift. There's other cities and states. It's really taken off in, in the desert in Arizona and Central Valley. They're building whole communities, 5,000, 7,000 homes that are all for rent. They're master planning. This project could possibly have one more option. Would be a win-win and control traffic. I, I live off Digital Town 2, from District 2. Uh, my sister got T-boned by a car on Hawkins Road with her daughter in the car. I, I, I know the risk, know the problem, so I'm not naive to that. Um, but there's one option we haven't discussed yet. Under 330, that project can be built. If he, we give the developer one opportunity to come back and discuss to us how we can take this condo, I'm sorry, I kind of skipped away, apartment complex. You can build a park complexes they're doing it all over the state with the infrastructure, the, the flow to be converted to condos. So the price point per unit for an apartment is different than the price point per unit for a condo. That would, that can eliminate just enough units to mitigate some of the parking problems but with a future goal, at some point, this project will be converted to condos. Therefore, we'll have a kind of cohesive neighborhood of ownership and the opportunity for more smaller condo units to be available for residents to start that path home ownership. It's a win-win. So no one's talked about that yet. Um, maybe because I spent some time reading Wall Street Journal and stuff, but there's, there's an option no one's discussed. I mean, we, you could find the price per unit. You can hit the books figure out, I can eliminate 13 units, increase the parking, 
keep some cards off the street with an intent, maybe just, I think, 20 years, convert this from apartments to ownership. And people that are living there have the opportunity. There's other places where, for example, you pay $2,000 a month in rent. Maybe 5% of that rent would go into a fund to help you with the closing costs to actually buy the unit you're living in. There's a lot of creative things to be done outside of Rapidville that you can make it happen. So it, it can be a win-win. Now, the, the product's gonna come regardless. I want the best product to come to Vacaville that's gonna be amicable for the community. Maybe that just enough can give them the foresight to say, I will reduce those units, knowing that at some point, I'll turn this product over to the community. It'll be a homeowner association, and you guys can manage your own, your own community. It's an option. We can delay it, give one more chance to say, the feasibility of reducing the units with intent to come up condos, Within 10 years, we'll get the ability, kind of cash flow enough to make it work for me for a 10 year period to sell it. Thank you. Vice Mayor Stockton. Thank you. Uh, I have two things. Uh, the first question is um, if this goes to litigation, um, would it have to proceed until there's a finding? Or if we get regular updates like we do with other closed session items? Is that something that council could revisit this later on if it um, is that something that would be we would give be given updates on and and could make further decisions later on if if it does proceed to litigation um, the council certainly would be given updates it would depend on uh, any negotiations with um, the the party that's suing us uh, if there would be an opportunity for the council to um, uh, resolve or settle it or compromise in some certain way. It would also have to come back uh, to the council if sure. if you were to uh, bring a different project forward. Okay. In, in a public in a public meeting. Okay. And then um, the develop the uh, developer hasn't spoken today, but I did have one question for the, the developer if that's okay. Oh, should I ask it? Here, okay, that's fine. Uh, I, and, and you don't have to answer, but, but my question is, um, it, it appears very clear that this community has been under the impression that these were going to be townhomes that were built there. And my question is, was it your decision or staff's recommendation that you build apartments, or is it uh, your decision that you wanted to build townhomes or apartments? Mike's on. Good evening, Council. Christian Seabree on behalf of the applicant. The uh, When the development agreement for the Southtown development area expired, the floor of the minimum density went up under us. And so from a site planning perspective, it is not feasible to get a townhome only project on that site anymore because of the city's adopted zoning that we're now subject to. We have a minimum zoning of 20 units an acre now. We can't go below units an acre it's illegal for us to go below 20 units an acre and the, the city has you know as to the traffic issues you know the green tree project that just came along that's a lot of units coming on leisure town that the city just approved and we don't see how our project would have any different impact so fewer units so to answer my question the decision to build apartments was yours the the business plan of apartments versus condos yes uh that is the applicant's business model that's correct I just wanted to clarify that. Councilmember Roberts. As an ask for um, 
yeah, with stuff litigation, SB 330, how do those play with each other? Like, do we have to wait for, like, say they come down with SB 330 application, the state says, hey, you have to build these, or you have to let them build it. It's like, there's still litigation from that point, or? I, I'm sorry, can you, can you? Like, if the that? state dictates that, we have to let them build. Like, is there grounds for litigation? Because, like, even though we denied it, like, they still get to build it anyways. So, so if if we go to litigation and we're sued by the developer, that is one um, likely result um, that the court would send it back and tell us to comply with SB 330 and approve the project. Okay. It, did that answer your question? Yeah. Councilmember Wiley. So, just to be clear, are we voting on this one? and then voting on the other one, or are they tied together to, to deny both of them? Or because we, this, we're all still talking about the appellate screen first. Okay. So we're gonna deny one and two together or? Okay, okay. All right. Council member Wiley. So are we gonna talk about appeal number two before we vote on this then? I just didn't know if they were going to say, I, I, I guess the first one, we're talking about number two, really. So number one, were they gonna talk about that one at all, the developers? Because that's the one that said, we don't wanna pay the CFP. So, so staff has completed the presentation on right. both elements. Okay. The, the public uh, comment period was open and closed. And so now it's in your court to make a decision on the recommendation that you have before you. Okay, I uh, wanted to make a quick comment. I have sat up here for 14 years. Uh, we come up here with an open mind. We listen to the developer, we listen to the public, we listen to our staff. Um, as you know, for the last four years, I've sat up here as the mayor of the city of Vacaville, as the chair of this city, of uh, this council up here. And I always let all my council members speak before I speak. That being said, you also know me as I wanna get through the agenda and make it work one way or the other, however it's gonna be. At the last council meeting, there was lots of stuff brought up about safety. I had strong comments about other things that weren't about safety, but I didn't bring up the other comments because the comments were already made. We made the motion because it was about safety uh, and that we wanted to take it back to the to the staff and have the staff do their due diligence to make sure that we were making the correct um, the correct decision for tonight. So I just wanna be very clear that it's not about if it works or if it feels good, it's about safety concerns. And so um, staff gave their opinions tonight and now we have to make the decision. But my mind's always been open. It's always been about the safety concerns and uh, I just wanted to be very clear about that tonight because I only spoke about one thing last time. And I wanna be very clear about safety concerns tonight. So with that, I'll entertain motion. I have one more question. Sure. Um, Councilmember Williams. With regard to like timelines, I know SB 330 has certain timelines for the approval of things. Um, under public safety, like specifically the evacuation for emergencies, can we table this until that plan is put together so we have the completed plan for the county because I think until that's complete, it's too early to make any judgment call on 
what the public safe issue is regarding evacuations. I mean, not just for the city, but Fairfield and other agencies as well. There's a time limit under SB 330 for um, approving the project, and we're we're running out of time on that time period. If the developer wanted to grant more time, they could do that, and that could waive Public that. For denying the project, if the council made a finding of this adverse impact that the project would cause that's based on a fixed standard, um, public safety could, could be the basis of that. But, but the, we don't have that standard yet. That's, that's what I'm right. saying. It's like it's not been produced by the county. So we can't say it's a actual issue or not until the evacuation plan is completed. Yeah, the law specifically says that if the project's consistent with rules and standards in effect at the time that it's, it's deemed complete, that, that those are the standards the city can hold the project accountable yeah. to. I mean, the standard is a grand jury report. It said there, it dictated that the county had to do it. So that is predating these councils. So I don't know. It's, it's a written standard. They had to do it by the grand jury. So I don't, I don't know how that plays into it. Uh, Vice Mayor Stockton. Um, yes, we've heard testimony today, additional concerns related to the safety um, and totality. I motion that we keep the same recommendation from the last. I have a motion. Second. I have a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Yep. One. Can you repeat the motion? motion is that we maintain the same recommendation from the last meeting, um, specifically the one in front of the public, not the closed session related. Is that your understanding, um, Council Member Sullivan? Yes. So, so will you clarify that? So, so that, that would be to appeal one. It would be to approve appeal number one, deny appeal number two, deny the Southtown Moody EIR, or excuse me. To approve Miss Minion's appeal, deny the other appeal, and to deny the EIR, correct? As well as to deny the plan development of Southtown? That was my understanding. That particular motion would, in effect, say that you're denying the project. And if that is the case, I would encourage the council to add some global concepts of findings that you're basing that action on for the record. And you can say that based on the record that you've heard tonight, based on based on know, the, the testimony data. that we've heard from the community, and based on the stats that have been provided by staff, the comments made by council, and um, related to traffic, related parking. to traffic safety, related to um, yeah. the evacuation issues, um, the fact that Travis Air Force Base is right there, and and that's an added um, issue with evacuation and safety of the country. Um, I think we've heard a lot about safety, and I, I think we can rely on the testimony that we heard from the community and from council over the last two meetings um, for that appeal, is my understanding, correct? Absolutely. I think one of the other big concerns I have is the EIR. That's the oldest thing that was okay, but we have a new project plan, the EIR is almost as old as me. I have some serious concerns about all of the above that you just mentioned with the sale EIR. I know staff has said that they've assessed this out and they've looked at it, but I have some similar concerns there resulting in uh, some serious safety and evacuation concerns, as you mentioned as well. Do we need to re-motion this? 
I would recommend it. Okay. Can okay. you free motion? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Vice Mayor. Okay, so I motion that we deny appeal number one. Is that correct? Approve appeal number two. Deny the South Town Moody EIR. Well, that's that's why I said it the opposite way the right. first time, yeah. because of what that said. So I okay. Let Can me rephrase. Let me start Can you help over. Vice Mayor out. I would like to approve Miss Minion's appeal, deny the developers. I would like to um, not affirm the South Town Moody EIR from 2004, and I would like to not approve the planned development for South Town Apartments subject to the conditions of approval based upon the testimony that we heard at the last two meetings and the comments by the and, and based on your earlier comments, uh, the, those would include uh, traffic, traffic safety, the evacuation plan, um, a stale EIR. Uh, I think those those were the three. It includes all of the testimony that we heard from from council and from from the staff. Are you good with that motion? Yes. Okay. And Mr. Sullivan, are you seconding that motion? Aye. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Say yes, yes. You oppose yes. it. I have one that I'll opposes. I'd like, like the opportunity to have come back with that option. Maybe we can deny it. it. The motion and second was made. It's been voted on. Thank you very much. Are we good with that item? Okay. Yeah. We will move on to the next. No, not now. We should have done it. We're going to take a five-minute recess. Selecting nonprofit organizations that submitted applications for grants for nonprofits using the American Rescue Plan Act dollars. A real quick recap in 2021, ARPA was signed into law to provide fiscal aid to 
local jurisdictions to address COVID-19. The city received a little over $12.5 million. Funds can be used for expenses for March 21 through December 2024 and have to be used for an eligible expense. Uh, the categories of those eligible expenses are in your staff report. In October 21, the council heard about the eligible categories, priority areas identified by staff, and recommended online budgeting survey. And then later in April, the council did allocate approximately $10 million. Uh, then later in June, the CDBG CARES funds were applied and allocated also to address COVID impacts. At the summer September 27th meeting, the council allocated the remaining ARPA funds. And of those 2.565 million allocated at the September meeting, 1.265 were allocated to a nonprofit grant program. Also at the September meeting, the council considered grant criteria to include the eligible organizations, ranking criteria, and that $1 million would be the maximum grant that could be applied for. A request for proposals was re released on October 3rd. Applications were due October 24th. 14 applications were received. There is a summary matrix of the applications included in your staff report as attachment one. The total funding requested is 5,641,452. And the requests before you range from $12,000 to $1 million. The following options are provided for your consideration this evening. The city council could select nonprofit organizations to receive awards, including the amount of awards this evening. The city council could provide ranking and award information to staff, and then staff can bring an item to uh, before you for consideration at a future meeting. And of course, the council can always provide um, different direction on how they would like to address selection of nonprofit organizations and award amounts. There are, as you know, thank you for moving the item for the representatives from the applicants um, that are here this evening. And that concludes uh, my presentation. Thank you very much. So um, we did move it up so we can get everyone out of here because it's probably the bulk of everyone in here. What I ask tonight is, and I think uh, Anna Eaton did a great job. I hope that was you last time. If you have a bunch of folks that are gonna, all gonna come up and speak on one item, just come up as a group, have a spokesperson. That way we can keep, keep this going. We did hear you last time. That's why we brought it back. Uh, so if you can, please, I'm gonna open it up public comment. Um, please help me and not have a thousand people come and speak about one organization. Oh, seeing nothing. Well, if the kids, if the kids want to speak, um, I'm okay with them speaking. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to have one kid speak for the rest of the Come year. Come on. Y'all hear that? Absolutely. So, your time. My name is Jose Ayala. I'm a resident of Agaval. Been a resident of Agaval all my life, born and raised. Um, been uh, active in the soccer community for the last 14 years as a coach. Been president of the Vacaville Youth Soccer League for the last eight. Um, and I wish, uh, you know, when you're talking about having people go out and look at some things and maybe see if you can allocate these funds to certain organizations. I wish you guys would have done that last week. Uh, if anybody's a member of the Back of the United Soccer Club organization, any family members here, they realize the last 10 weeks at Horse Creek, it's like a tournament event atmosphere. And uh, 
I come to here to you today for the biggest need for our soccer club and the service that we provide for the community and our 1,200 uh, registered players for the Vacaville United Soccer Club that bathrooms are needed. We, right now, we currently uh, we need money for, for bathrooms. We currently have uh, portables. Uh, Councilman Greg is, is one of our members, and he can tell you that the, the atmosphere out there, there's a lot of people, thousands of people going in and out after each game, and right now we're just using portables. So I don't know if exactly that's what I'm supposed to do up here, but perfect. Thank Jose, you. it's good I, to see you. I appreciate it. Thank it's you. been a long time. Next. Ugh. Hi, my name is Krista Poe, and um, I'm a special needs mom. This is really close to my heart, so it makes me a little emotional. That's my daughter sitting over there in the maroon shirt. I run an organization. I'm actually the founder and president of Team Backaville. Um, we started our organization in 2016, originally hoping that we would have some interest in our program. And uh, surprisingly, I started Team Backaville with a, with a wait list of children that wanted to come in. Um, in 2016, we started with about, we started with 12 special needs children. Our program is a buddy-based program that pairs up uh, special needs children with teenagers. And then we go out into the community and we provide them opportunities to be part of the community doing things in a supported fashion. Um, we started with basically 14 special needs children and 14 teenagers for 28 kids. We are currently running about 120 people and somewhere between 120 and 150 people in Team Backaville. We, we support special needs children kind of all over the place with all different range of disabilities. The money that we're hoping that we will be granted allows us to provide opportunities for our kids to do things out in the community. Our special needs families in general are usually faced with a hardship of medical bills, therapies, medications, um, adaptive equipment, like honestly, it's a it's a really big, um, oh, see, this makes me emotional. Um, and so our program is free to all of our families and everything that we raise, we raise on our own. We don't ask anything from them except to come and show up and have a good time. That's all of our special needs children, that's all of our teenagers, and that's all of our volunteers. So basically, <coughs> we beg for money and then we say, come have fun with us. Um, this is us attempting that. I'm not a grant writer. I'm actually the one that put together the paperwork, and um, but I did my best, hoping that you guys would see through the words and into what we're actually trying to accomplish here. Um, I'm really, really grateful to even have this opportunity to be included with these other amazing organizations because truly, whoever you give this money to today is gonna benefit in a really wonderful fashion. So we just wanna really say thank you for allowing us to be represented here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Good evening. I brought a large troop with me. Um, I'm Danny Over, a retired Backville PD officer for 26 years. Uh, current PAL board member, current retirement job as a teacher at the high school level. Um, you'll be hearing from at least one, hopefully maybe two of our um, PAL participants tonight. Hopefully you'll be impacted by what you hear from them as um, they've been impacted with our PAL program. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Angelica Marena. I am part of PAL Teens. I've been part of the program for about one year. I'm here to share my experience with PAL. Being part of PAL has been amazing, helpful, life-changing. I was referred to the program for division hours. I had to serve community service hours for about three months. I had I had the choice between staying in the program or leaving after I completed my division hours. 
I decided to stay in the program because I truly enjoy being around everyone and having fun. I was obtaining many things. Since then, I put my all into the program and gotten a lot. Over the year, I've met so many amazing people around California due to having the opportunity to participate in leadership conferences, trips, events, and of course, here in the Pell program, I've met many more. I've gained confidence and courage over the year. I've learned to be outgoing, brave, social. Thanks to Pell, I've learned to believe in myself and to be a leader in my community. I've gained many life skills over time. Furthermore, I've accomplished important things, one of those being a police cadet for the city of Vacaville. <coughs> the cadet program has also taught me a lot of lessons like discipline and helped me pursue the career in the future. Thanks to Pal, I'm doing great things for my community, my friends, family, and for my future. Thank you all for your time. Thank you. Go ahead. Good evening, Mayor. Mayor, city manager, and members of the council. My name is Ricky Ortega. Um, I'm here to, uh, because I wanted to give back to PAL for all the things they've given me. Um, I got into PAL after doing community service hours, and uh, I stayed because of the impact they left on my life. Um, through PAL, I was able to participate in many trips and events that are incredibly amazing. Activities such as the Outdoor Youth Connection camping trip um, has also positively affected my life. It taught me valuable leadership skills and um, I made many friends there, but more importantly, it helped me realize that I can make a change in my community. Um, the local events are also very beneficial here that uh, PAL does. Um, such events are the Halloween movie nights where we gather with young children, and we play games, um, uh, show movies, and uh, have fun activities. This event was very important to me because I was not able to enjoy such things when I was younger. Um, has um, really changed my life. I don't know what I'd be doing without it because I used to stay inside all day. But thanks to Pow, almost on a weekly basis, I'm able to go out and help out my community. Um, I asked for funding because um, I want to be able to um, spread that legacy power is made of changing lives and uh, helping out the community, both old and young. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. My name is Luis Valle. I attend Vagwell High School. The reason I'm speaking here because I hated public speaking, talking to a big group. I was always been scared of it. And because of PAL, I'm here now to face this fear. PAL is an amazing program that has taught me many things. I've been in this program for many years now. Um, it has taught me to be more show, social and be more openly about stuff and volunteer more. It has taught me to be more confident. Because of PAL, I've met a lot of new friends who I talk to almost every day, kids and adults. We also get to uh, have these opportunities to go to trips and Conferences about leadership. And also, I love how we help around our community, like clean up trash on Rocky Hill Trail and giving out to people. And what I mean by giving out to people, we have this event, it's called Shop with a Cop, where we get kids together and we go to a store and the kids get to shop for their family for Christmas. And yeah, that's been my experience with that. Thank, Thank you for your time. Much. Thank you guys. For Thank time. you. All right. You have another one? One more. One more. Yeah, this last person. Sure. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Christiana, and I am a senior at Buckingham. I have been in PAL all four years of my high school, and PAL has really been there for me, especially during COVID when I couldn't socialize with anybody um, and everything was social distance. PAL was there for me, and I was able to see people who I was familiar with. Um, through PAL, I was able to gain confidence and become a leader. There's a thing called PAL Kids, which I present to, and I teach kids and make an activity for them at the end. And uh, I was the public relations officer, which would they, I would post to social media, and all like the kids would be smiling after they created like their little project. Um, oh, that just made me really happy. And that also helped me make presentations. And for PAL, I've also been the secretary. And so I've learned how to like take meeting minutes and uh, do all that type of stuff. So yeah, to me, PAL has really made a big impact on my life. I ain't really, I wasn't really too connected with my community before. I didn't really do many things or service. And after joining PAL, I, like you said, I helped clean up the Rocky Hill Trail, picked up cigarette buds, and I got to actually know people in my community, which helped me become a lot closer with them and actually care more. Um, seeing the impact that I've made and seeing like people smile. Um, on Officer Night Out, I even dressed up as McGruff and I went to like different uh, like parks with kids and I just got to see them all enjoying their time. And so I just went funding for PAL so other people get the experience that I've had and that this program gets to continue on. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Yeah, please. <laughs> Okay, so I have been a board member with PAL as long as Danny Ober has been. So that's quite a bit, ever since my kids were third grade and I already have one in, at Davis. So I just wanted to say, PAL provides access. Access which a lot of programs won't have. I mean, imagine living near the beach and not being able to go to the beach because you don't have that access. And then you're accompanied by police officers who really want to go through community policing. Um, so that's why I'm involved in PAL, just because of the access that they provide to kids who can't afford that access. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thank, Thank you. you. Hello, Mayor, uh, Council Members. Um, I wanna say thank you for your service. I recently, recently retired after 28 years of service in the Air Force as one of the group commanders at Travis Air Force Base. And I know um, when you take a service position, a leadership position, rarely do you get handed any easy decisions to make. Um, quite often you're the one levied with the hard decisions to make. Uh, usually there's very little appreciation for the job that you do <laughs> and little thanks, but I wanna tell you, you have my respect and my appreciation for your service to our community. So thank you. Today, I'm not representing the, uh, the Air Force. Today, I'm representing an organization right here uh, called Levin Kids. Uh, and I'll be very specific about the request that we have here. Um, it's a request for $103,086 with two specific goals in mind there. One of them is to increase access for our kids for two more hours uh, or two more days week every other week out of a month so two more Fridays we'd like to add to um, 
accommodate learning for 11 kids. Um, specifically, we wanna target the reading and the math uh, growth amongst these kids. The additional topic that we're making a request for is a van. Right now we have two vans to service 17 different facilities and we'd like to service one more, get one more van out of this request so we can open up that access to kids to get them on field trips and expose them to other things that are available, not only Travis Air Force Base, but other things in the community. And again, these things are to uh, specifically address the education void that, uh, that happened with these kids during COVID timeline. Uh, they're already a little bit behind the power curve. English is a lot of times a second language spoken uh, in their household, and it can be very overwhelming for these kids. You mentioned that you're a stats-based organization uh, council, but um, so according to the National Assessment of Educational Proge Progress, this is basically our nation's report card. Every state declined in math, cores, in math scores, and in specifically fourth graders, had their steepest drop in over 50 years. Historically, it's our underserved groups that fall even further behind those national averages. Closing the gap is the, is the focus of this request for 11 kids. We're good at what we do. You can ask the schools that we work with. Teachers report that 11 kids showed an 88% improvement in reading, 83% improvement in math, and an 81% increase classroom participation. That increased classroom participation for me speaks to their confidence is growing and they feel up. empowered. Yes, sir. Um, the other thing that we bring to the, to the kids is exposures to different technologies. We've got some, some lenses there, we've got some 3D printers we expose them to, so other technologies that otherwise they wouldn't be exposed to. Thank you um, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Next, next speaker. Good evening. My name is Joseph Wise and I represent the Lions Center for the Visually Impaired. I have a few quick remarks I'd like to share with this council this evening. Um, the Lions Center for the Visually Impaired is uh, proposing Vision Health Vacaville. Uh, we would serve 150 uh, recipients. Uh, part of our program covers home visits and assessments for the visually impaired seniors 55 age, uh, age 55 and older in the community. Uh, that would include orientation and mobility training for the visually impaired and the blind, um, in-home services such as assessments and assistance with low vision devices and low vision technology. Uh, we would also provide two classes and activities in the community for that specific population. And we also operate an early detection program with vision screenings uh, for our clients. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Next speaker, please. Good evening, Mayor Roulette, members of council. I'm Melissa Reeves. I am the president and CEO of Visit Vacaville. I just wanted to say a few words. I know my organization is probably not the first that comes to mind when it uh, comes to these, these ARPA funds and this grant. Um, but my organization's role is to build quality of life in our community. Prior to COVID, we launched a program called the Hidden Disability Sunflower Program, where it was really working with our businesses on um, making sure that they are providing great service to those that maybe just need a little extra time um, when they see a, a little sunflower icon or a lanyard. That was always supposed to be part of a larger program called Think Differently, where we really are making our city accessible to 
all, regardless of ability. We think it's a really great time um, with all the focus on our community with the Play for All Park. And so um, not only would we be able to bring services to our community and our residents, but also to our visitors and make sure that our community is welcoming to everyone. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello and good evening. My name is Nicole L. Gadsden. I am the president of Lucy's Tree of Life R&R Foundation. And we're a local Bay Area nonprofit. And our goal kind of came from COVID to combat um, the mental health issues, housing, um, employment, food. So we kind of jumped in where we want to use the funds to create housing, farming, mental health services. There'll be on-site um, food, training, counseling, childcare, um, just to name a few other things that will be on-site. We'll have tiny homes. They won't have stovetops in them, but they will have a small kitchen. We'll have, we're building and designing a large kitchen where the people on-site will go and eat their meals and socialize and things of that nature. So we appreciate it if you would give us some of your funds so that we can do these things if anybody else would like to say anything. Yeah, so we, um, we are also uh, Vacaville residents and we do see the need for um, more inclusion for, um, for just people of all types. And um, there's not really a lot of mental health help facilities that are open to the public. A lot of them have been shutting down um, and a lot of them are more, uh, they either go to jail or you have to pay for a private uh, mental institution. Um, and we're, that we're trying to combat with that. We work with a lot of mental health um, facilitators as well as licensed um, therapists um, on hand. So we do want to provide that as well as housing um, for low income. That was an issue that we heard today from the council that um, there's not a lot of um, Section 8 uh, housing and things like that. So we want to help combat with that as well, offering um, low-income housing on um, our, our facility. And then to add to that, um, we also, to amid COVID, we want to um, um, provide cleaning services to the tiny homes. So we don't rely on people that we're housing to, you know, exactly. <laughs> We have a crew that goes in and they're certified to clean COVID clean. Very nice. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna close public comment. Bring it back to council. Uh, council member Richie. So everyone spoke. Um, I think one, we're trying to find a way to rank. And one of the things I think would really help us out is if you guys will tell how many years of service that each institution has been in Vacaville and when you, when you guys started. For example, like Levin, how long, Back United Soccer, how your organization, that would help us rank to how long they've been serving the community um, and how many people. Like that really helps to know and give it the value. Like Powell's been here for X amount of years. They've helped scores towards kids, average 700, 300 kids per year. That would really help us know how long you've been effective in the community. So if you guys please provide that, either yell it out now or, or write it to us, please. You want them to send that in? If you can send it in, I mean, I think that really, really helped. No, send it in. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Roberts. 
Yeah, so just want to make this relatively quick, hopefully. Um, so what I was looking at was some of these kind of smaller uh, requests um, going from like Powell down. Uh, so again, giving Powell 150,000, soccer 100,000, Levin 100,000, on stage uh, 50, the 50,000 they asked for, Team Backwell, they're 40,000, and Disabled Vets, the 12,000. And then the rest of them uh, asked staff to do some type of worksheet for us. I can send out to us individually so we can kind of average or put what we think the remainder should go to. Because um, most of these deal with, yeah, most of the ones under 200,000 are dealing with the youth, which is very important. And Melissa, I did leave Visit Vacuum off there because I would like to see that be ongoing, maybe worked into your contract that's already with the city to be a, not just 100,000 this time, but like a ongoing service you'd be providing for the whole city. Uh, so that's what I was thinking with that. I didn't not want to give you money, but it's like, so it's ongoing service to be more, especially with the Play for All Park. We want to bring more of the disabled community into Vacaville, show them that there's opportunities for them here to do things. Um, and so that's what I was thinking for for those ones. I don't know what the rest of council's thinking um, for the, for the whole list. I know this can be a very very long uh, item if we made it, but uh, Councilmember Wiley, um, I also think it's going to be difficult to come up with. Here's our suggestions right now because there's so many different things, and I do think we need to kind of look at our first criteria and do something for disabilities, seniors, youth, homeless to kind of spread the love out. So we have a deal with all those different populations in some way. Um, I do the Vacaville Soccer Club. I looked at the information and I don't think I saw bathrooms in the information. I saw a lot of working with the Boys and Girls Club. So can you clarify or does the city know? Come to the doc. Because I know there is a need for bathrooms out there, so so so, so that's why I was looking. I'm sorry. Um, was like about before you came here, so <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell him what to say. But um, anyway, what we actually asked for was to help us with the infrastructure for the city, uh, for our city park that we um, lease from the city. We've been here since 1990 um, doing soccer for the city of Vacaville. Um, we've grown. A lot. Um, we have a contract with the city now. We have lots of obligations under this contract. Under this contract with COVID, we've um, done a lot under this contract, as in helping all the kids with their um, get their energy out. Especially during COVID, it was super important for them to be out here. Um, we did ask for the infrastructure, which is the shade and for. Um, Lights, sorry, lights. Mm -hmm. The light project is what we had on as part of our contract with the city, and we had to kind of put that on hold because of COVID, because we had to take the money that we um, had saved up to get us through COVID, because we have certain obligations under our contract, certain ways that we have to maintain these skills, and so ran out of that money that we had as a cushion. So that's what we're asking for. We do do a lot for the community. We have a lot of fundraising. We do a lot, do a lot of um, help the kids with all their programs. We try to do lots of scholarships. We'll let anybody who wants to play soccer play soccer. I'm, I'm um, not going like to cut you off, but I am. 
with the... We, we're just trying to get that oh, answer. sorry. You're almost uh, pitching. I'm going, I'm going, going, Thank sorry. you, though. We did want a partnership with the um, Boys and Girls Club. They have been out at our fields, done soccer programs out there. The, and that's written in the contract. Yes, yes. Thank oh. you very much. Councilmember Wiley, are you done? Yes, Council that was my question. Councilmember Sullivan. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, so I think we have the um, incredibly hard and, and really not fun task of whittling down, you know, $5.6 million in requests to the 100 or 1.25 million that we have. Um, the requests are all great. There's all good causes. They're all going to good things. And so um, there's also seven of us up here that have different affinities and different thoughts and opinions. So this could be very messy tonight. Um, so I guess the, the first two thing I want to say is like, even for the grants that we can't fund or that we don't fully fund or partially fund, there's other avenues to fund them, right? So if we don't fund bathrooms tonight, for example, at the soccer park, maybe that's something Parks and Rec can talk about. If we don't fund PAL to the fullest, maybe we fund half or a three quarter or whatever, maybe there's a way to build that in the next year's budget. If we don't fund tiny shelters tonight, maybe there's a way to work with you guys through our homeless coalition council on the back end. So what I'm saying is if we can't fund everything tonight, because we won't be able to, there's a way that we can hopefully work with you on, on the back end of that as well. So I do think what I would like to suggest, I think option B is probably the best option, which was to come up with some sort of rating sheet. We all go home, do our research, we rate it. You guys do an average and bring it back to us. I think otherwise we're gonna go back and forth a million times. I agreed with 60% of or 70% of your, what you put out there, but not all of it. So again, we'll be here till three in the morning if we don't. So I really like B and I also wanna encourage everyone if you don't get selected to be funded fully, like please engage with us still. There's other ways to fund programs. And again, we've got $5.6 million in requests. We got 1.25 to give out. So there's gonna be $4 million of folks that aren't happy, right? So um, it, it's gonna be challenging. Thank you, Council Member Sullivan. And so I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna try to make this into a motion to get through it. Uh, I did talk to the city manager and um, I do believe uh, that we need to rank them um, because we will be here all night and I'll want something different, you'll want something different and we'll never get anywhere. So I, I'm gonna ask the city manager, can you, uh, can we direct you tonight to come up with some kind of ranking system so you can send it to the council, council can rank it and bring it back to the next meeting. Can, can we have staff help us whittle this down so we can, Help me. Help me help I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my best. Okay. So we specifically kind of stayed away from it just because this was something that, you know, um, council uh, directed us to do. And so uh, we did put the eligibility, you know, criteria in there, but not specifically, you know, um, how to rank them and prioritize them. Um, so in looking at option two, what we were thinking is, is that if the council wanted to, you know, do your own independent ranking, and then provide that back to us within say a week or two, we could then take those results. Now, I suspect you're not gonna have, you know, all line up and everything, but then we can bring those results back to, um, if, you, if you're willing to, you know, give yourself a, a reduced timeline, we could bring this back hopefully to the December 13th meeting with this particular council and have another conversation. Now, if you'd like to help us help you, um, what might be helpful to um, take that next step is, is if there's certain um, things that are important to this collective council or the majority, such as that we are reaching, you know, all the different groups that you've identified, that, you know, are represented here and not just all, consolidate all the money in one group or that it should be spread. You know, if there's things like that that you want to agree on or that could actually even be reflected in your voting and make comments. 
And so I think that's probably the easiest way to go is you know send this back, uh, take some homework home. Um, if you're willing to give yourselves a week or two after maybe the Thanksgiving holiday, we can collect that data from you, put your notes on there, what's important to you, why you voted that way, and then we can compile some I would know, like to recommendations. See that. Yeah, so we can rank it. If I have my top five, I put my top five, and then if he has his top five, then we can figure out. One by one, two by one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The, so the the attachment that you have in there does include a ranking you know, score sheet right. as well as the allotment of monies. Perfect. You can do simply do that and we can take I'll, that data and, and I'll make that motion it. that we rank it by uh, our favorite and by the monies. Can I make one, one comment here? Yeah, please. Yeah. Can we also direct staff to maybe just think about for folks uh, if they are collecting, do they think it's an excellent program? Yeah, absolutely. That's not a problem. I'll include that in my motion. Just to, just to clarify, all those ranking sheets, anything you turn in would all be public record, yeah. all the comments and everything. Great. I think it should be. Yeah. I have a motion to second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Unanimous. Okay, now we'll jump back on. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming out. We'll jump back into 8C. Am I correct on that? Or 8B? 8C. Let's not do 8B again. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure. I'm gonna go get a rib. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. Moving forward with 8C. item 8C. Please, Mr. Zimmerman, go ahead. Thank you. So, uh, Mr. Mayor, members of the Council, this particular item is several actions related to the Northeast Growth Area. We have Aaron Morris, our Community Development Director, and Paymon Devon from our Planning Department to give you a brief presentation on this. Thank you, Mayor Roulette and members of Council. I'm here this evening with the Northeast Growth Area Code Amendments. Um, and the request before the Council um, involves an amendment to the Zoning Ordinance to add a new Northeast Growth Area Overlay District to our Land Use and Development Code to revise various chapters to include references to the Northeast Growth Area and to amend the zoning map for 10 properties to add the overlay district to those properties. Background, 2015, the council adopted the current general plan. Um, in 2020, we adopted a comprehensive zoning map update and subsequently in 22, um, a zoning code update, a full update, as well as some additional map updates. And then in August, we came to you, um, Don Burris and I, with a presentation about the Northeast Growth Area. And at that meeting, you directed staff to begin the process of creating a specific plan for the Northeast Growth Area and to bring forward these zoning code amendments to help protect the area and ensure that we get the kinds of biotech uses that we're looking for. Um, on October, uh, just, just last month, we took this set of amendments to Planning Commission and the Commission unanimously recommended approval. This is a map that shows the Northeast Growth Area. Uh, the area inside of the orange is in the city and the area that's not inside of this orange boundary is not yet in the city. Uh, the pink line shows the city's sphere of influence and how it extends around the entire Northeast Growth Area. So the zoning text changes are pretty straightforward. The new overlay zoning district identifies the Northeast Growth Area, what its purpose is, what we're trying to accomplish there. Uh, the language is set up to guide temporary or interim development so we can allow things to happen on a temporary basis but preserve that land for those employment type uses in the future. 
Um, it sets forth a list of permitted uses, retaining most of the things that are currently allowed, but also sets forth a process where additional uses can be considered through a conditional use permit and development agreement. And that would be how we would ensure that things that came forward would be temporary in nature. Uh, this is a list of all the chapters that are affected. I keep moving here. Um, the Northeast growth area is 72 parcels and totals about uh, 1,400 acres. Of these parcels, 10 that are within the city would be rezoned and would have this overlay district applied to them. And so this map shows those areas that are changing from, for example, this one's going from ag to parks and rec, ag to residential low density. Um, but this map, which is included in your packet, really shows all those site-specific zoning changes that are occurring. Um, the environmental review, we looked at the, comp the comprehensive general plan update EIR, the ECAS EIR, and the recent VMT EIR, and concluded that all of these zoning code amendments are within the scope of these certified documents. Uh, it's also important to note that new development would be subject to a separate CEQA, CEQA process uh, to ensure compliance with the California Environmental Quality Act. So at the number, November 1st Planning Commission meeting, it was actually pretty well attended from the public. We had about six members of the public there. We received public comments, concerns about people's ability to continue their existing rural residential land uses, uh, concerns about how um, residents of unincorporated county are notified, concerns about future road locations, um, and also traffic noise, and just impacts as this area changes over time. So staff explained that all of the existing land uses can, that are allowed out there, they can continue operating. Not, no one would force a private property owner to do something new out there until they're ready. Um, the general plan does show some preliminary road locations, but those would be further home by the specific plan process that would be coming in forward next year. Um, this project, this um, proposal does not approve any specific projects and any future development would go through a process where the public would be notified. And that does include the unincorporated residents. At the conclusion of the public hearing, the commission voted 6-0 to recommend that the council approve these. So in conclusion, the commission and staff support these amendments. We believe they are consistent with the direction council gave staff. They're supportive of the city's biotechnology and advanced manufacturing initiative, consistent with general plan policies, and most importantly, existing uses can continue to operate if they would like to, keep to do that. And so we're recommending by simple motion that the council reaffirm the general plan EIR and the 2021 transportation element supplemental EIR and amend title 14 of the Vacaville Municipal Code as identified on the slide. And that concludes my presentation. I'm very happy to answer any questions. We're gonna open up public. I'm gonna close it public, bring it back to council for motion. Motion approved, thank you. I got a motion, do I have a second? I'll second. All those in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Unanimous, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Mayor, 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 I'll go ahead and I'll read title? another long title. Great, <laughs> awesome. Ordinance amending Title 14 of the City of Vacaville Municipal Code by one, amending text in Division 14.09 to add Chapter 14.091.1 for the Northeast Growth Area Overlay District with standards and regulations for interim development. Two, amending text in Chapters 14.09.050, 14 14.09.060, 14.09.080, 14.09.080, and 14.09090 to include references to the Northeast Growth Area Overlay District. Three, amending the zoning map in Chapter 14.09.040 to add an overlay district boundary to the zoning map for an area bound by Midway Road to the north, Meridian Road to the west, Lewis Road to the east, and Kilkenny Canal to the south, and four, amending the zoning map in chapter 14.09.040 
to change the zoning district designations for 10 properties located in the Northeast growth area from agriculture, industrial park, and general commercial to technology park, general commercial, business park, highway commercial, residential low density RL5, <clears throat> and parks and recreation that bear assessor parcel number 0101010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010010
All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Unanimous. Item E, Mr. City Manager. I'm gonna read again, because oh, I I'm like sorry. doing it so much. Ordinance of the City Council of the City of Vacville repealing Division 14.20 Construction and Fire Standards of Title 14 of the City of Vacaville Municipal Code and moving certain sections to Title 15 and repealing, replacing, and renaming Title 15 of the City of Vacaville Municipal Code, adopting by reference Title 24 of the 2022 California Code of Regulations, known collectively as the California Building Standards Code, respectively Part 2, California Building Code, Part 2.5, California Residential Code, Part 3, California Electrical Code, Part 4, California Mechanical Code, Part 5, California Plumbing Code, Part 6, California Energy Code, Part 8, California Historical Building Code, Part 9, California Fire Code, Part 10, California Existing Building Code, Part 11, California Green Building Standards Code, Cal Green Code, Part 12, California Reference Standards Code and adopting the 2021 International Property Maintenance Code and supplementary secondary references and establishing limits of districts in which storage of certain hazardous materials is prohibited. Fantastic. Item 8E, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the council. This next item is a resolution regarding a unpaid assessment for weed abatement. We have uh, our Fire Chief Chris Concepcion and Fire Marshal Jill Childers for a presentation. Good evening, Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the City Council. Tonight I'm here to present you one additional weed abatement lien for 2022. The City of Vacaville works with property owners to comply with the City's weed abatement requirements. In this case, we enforced um, Vacaville Municipal Code Section 8.04, which is the abatement of weeds and rubbish. I want to take a moment, and some of you might be wondering why I'm here today and not in June like I typically am, and that's because the city received notice um, from the county that this property is moving forward with um, foreclosure proceedings, um, which means that this property can be sold starting at the beginning of December. Um, just so you are aware, we provided the property owner appropriate notice. Um, notice of the lien hearing was mailed to 380 Spindrift Way on September 26th of this year. In the notice, we made the property owner aware that they had until the day prior to this November 15th hearing to pay in full or to call with any questions or concerns that they may have. However, that property owner still has not reached out to our office about payment. Lastly, we published the information about this hearing in the Vacaville Reporter as it is required by law. 380 Spindrift is located near Marshall Road, and this is just an image of that particular property. Code enforcement notified the property owner of the violations by issuing a courtesy notice <clears throat> in, on May 16th of this year and again on June 15th of this year. We had two violations at this particular property. We had weeds in the front yard and weeds in the rear and side yard. A notice in order to abate was issued on May 31st for the front yard and again on June 27th for the rear yard. Code posted an intent to apply for an abatement warrant on July 8th of this year and the courts granted us that warrant on August the 8th. The property was abated on August the 31st by a city contractor. This is just one before and after photo of the side rear yard of this property, so you guys can see what the contractor did in this particular area. Um, the cost of the abatement of this property, including staff time, was $1,837.67. 
The fiscal impact was the cost of the abatement. This was paid for from the city's general fund. The strategic plan gold initiative this falls under is goal number one to ensure public safety. And staff's recommendation is by simple motion to adopt the subject resolution. Great, thank you very much. Open to public comment. Close public comment, entertain motion. Council member Silva. Sorry, um, I have no, well, I just had a question. How do we, is there a verification process to make sure the funds that we're charging is appropriate? How do we, how do we verify or validate that the cost is? So we went off the city's fee schedule for staff times. Um, and so that's all been documented. And it, if you look at your staff report, it actually has a breakdown of right. city staff time that was spent on the project and the amount of time. And then the, the actual abatement cost is the quote and the bid that we received from the city's contractor that we use directly. But there's never like a challenge. Is there ever a challenge on how much we charge? Okay. Yeah. Uh, motion approved. Motion and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Unanimous. Mr. City Manager, 8F, please. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the council. This next item is a resolution for the city council to adopt the permanent local housing allocation program. Emily Cantu, our housing community services director and Tamara Colvin from uh, housing and community services are here for a presentation. Again, uh, tonight we are holding a required public hearing and asking for authorization to apply for the permanent local housing allocation funds, um, including the PLHA five-year plan. Uh, back in 2017, legislation was signed by the governor to include the Building Homes and Jobs Act. Uh, that act created a permanent source of affordable housing funds through a $75 recording fee on real estate transactions. The PLHA program provides funds to local governments and runs through the State Department of Housing and Community Development, HCD. Because we receive community development block grant funds, the city is an entitlement community for the PLHA funds as well. Um, although we're an entitlement community, we do need to apply for the funds. And that's why we're here this evening. Uh, this is the last year to apply for that first year that the allocation was available, 2019, um, or those funds would revert to another HCD program. Uh, to receive the funds, the city must meet threshold requirements. Uh, they're listed in the staff report and the slide before you, um, such as um, housing element compliance, required certifications and statements that are in the resolution, and the five-year plan that's an attachment to, to the staff report. Um, it does need to be a five-year plan. Um, years uh, 2019 and 2021 funds are available now, but they do require you to use an additional two years of projections that HCD gives you for a total of 1.4 more or less included in that plan. Um, as drafted, the plan's proposing use of the available funds for this five-year period for affordable renting, uh, rental and ownership housing. Um, if uh, when uh, funds were uh, planned for a particular project, that project and that plan for those funds comes before the council to make that decision, you'll consider um, anything uh, put forward and make those decisions at a future meeting. 
Uh, public notice was published on November 5th as required. Uh, we made the plan available on that date, put it on the website on that date as well. And we're asking if you can hold the required public hearing. Of course, we'll take comments and questions on the application and the plan from the Council of the Public. Um, if approved, we will uh, submit that to HCD by the deadline, which is the end of this month. Uh, there's no fiscal impact. Um, if awarded, it'll be an additional funding source for affordable housing activities for the city of Backville. And that's the end of my presentation. Thank you very much. I'm going to open it up for public comment. Close public comment. Entertain motion. Uh, Councilmember Wiley. I have a question first. If you'll go back to slide four, the chart. So on 22 and 23, is that 470,000 for both each year, 417, 22, and 423, or not? It's the projection HCD provided for both 22 and 23. So really a total of 834,000? 417 for two years. So total. why, I mean, because it Sorry. really increased from 19 to 20, it increased a lot. And then from 20 to 21, it increased quite a bit. And then if it's 21 to increase for two years, I mean, that's hardly an increase at all. So why, why did it increase so much less recently? I don't know, because unfortunately, because there are numbers that HCD put in a document that we have to refer to, I would assume those numbers are incorrect, like, like you're pointing out, uh, Councilmember Wiley, um, and that there will be additional funds available when those years um, are ready for us to spend. Because that would actually be a so, decrease if, if we got 417 for two years. It's like a, it's half the amount for 22 as it was for 21. Well, unless, um, and maybe council member Richie's could be related to so real estate. The, the reason why this fee is here, sorry. every transaction in California has a $75 amount. Every time you change ownership through buying, selling, transferring to a trust, out of a trust, you pay a $75 fee. So 2019 was not as profitable as 2020. 2020 was better. And you can see the more transactions, the more money we get. It's that simple. So then it looks like half as many people bought houses in 22 as they did in 21, if, if that cost covers for two years. So, okay. Perfect. Um, I'll entertain a motion. A motion to approve. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Unanimous. We will move to item 9A, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the council. This next item is the annual report from Thank Opportunity you. House. Um, Emily Cantu, I think, is going to kick things off. And with that, I'll turn it over to Emily. Yeah, I'd like to introduce Colleen Berriman uh, with the Opportunity House. Um, the city has provided loans um, for the Opportunity House uh, development and operations. And based on those loans, the city council has requested that Colleen, come talk to you every year and provide you some information of um, the services that have been provided at the Opportunity House during the past year. And I think she has a few other updates in her presentation. Thank you. Good evening, or it's almost morning. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to say that. City Manager, uh, Mayor, and uh, Vice Mayor, and City Council members, all of you. Thank you. If you could start the... We're having a short technical okay. difficulty. One moment. 
Yeah. We're very colorful this year. Um, so uh, I just really wanted to go over, I know we're, this presentation is mostly about Opportunity House because that was the specific in 2017 program that the city was funding. Um, but we have grown so much, especially due to COVID. Um, our services have been needed more. Um, so I really wanted to give you a VSSC update, which is Vacaville Solano Services Corporation. Um, we are doing more than just operating Opportunity House, which we did start in 1990. Uh, we are at the facility that you see pictured there since 2013. So next year will be 10 years for us there. And it's a 52 bed facility. I believe all of you have come to get a tour and see the services we're providing. Um, and um, we're doing all kinds of great things. New things we've added is our children's health and wellness program because we found a, a strong need for our children to get services. Um, I once had a saw a five-year-old go knock on our case manager's door and I asked her, what are you, what can I help you with? And she said, I need a case management appointment. And at that moment I realized this has been her life and this is what she's aware of and we need to help and give those services. So we created a children's health and wellness program. We did get some funding, uh, funding stopped. Um, we've been pay paying for that service because it's a service that couldn't go away. So that kind of added some of the increase to Opportunity House's expenses. We did just receive uh, money uh, that will be awarded in January from the California Arts Council to continue that program. So we will get a little bit of funding for that. We were also working with CRU, the commu Community Response Unit, Case Management and Street Outreach. Outreach that's been put on hold. We're looking forward to hopefully getting that going again. It really made a big difference in our homeless population that's out there on the streets, getting to know people individually and, um, and our police force and us working together was a wonderful partnership and I really look forward to that. Another thing, when we partnered with the City of Vacaville Housing for, with the emergency housing vouchers, we created a position called our Housing Navigator. Well, we found that that position, even after that contract ended, was something we had to continue to do. So that's another program that we've picked up and that we have been funding ourselves. We also opened up my friend's house with Solano County money. That is an eight bed um, shelter for the transitional age youth, 18 to 24. And I believe most of you have also toured that. And if you haven't, please let me know because I'd love to give you a tour of that as well. Um, we've not only done that, we also have um, two youth uh, rising programs, one based in uh, Vaca High and one at our, um, Oh, I almost said Armio. We'll see Wood High. Um, that is providing uh, outreach to those at need. So what we're trying to do is prevention. Um, and and Councilmember Silver, I know that was really important to you is prevention. And that's what we're trying to do is help break that cycle at the very very beginning. So a lot of kids don't even realize they're in the situation. Um, we've served 70 people over the last year. Um, I've got a fabulous assistant, Ashley, who loves numbers and statistics. So she's got all those statistics there for you. I won't go and repeat them all to you. But what I think the important thing for you guys to see and what's the most important is our work to housing program is working. And we're, we're making a difference in people's lives. And when people are staying six months or longer, 
we have an 87% success rate of these people not going back to homelessness. Um, and part of that, we created an after-reach program uh, that we did get some county funding for, which allows us to pr provide supportive services to people that graduate from our program, people we worked with with the voucher program, and giving them um, supportive services for an additional two years. So we truly are breaking that cycle of homelessness. Um, again, here's us working with crew, the famous picture. Um, we love that. Um, and then our housing navigation, as I talked about, helping people. I mean, 80% positive housing placement, that's huge, right? I don't wanna take up all time. <laughs> so this is my friend's house, I talked about it. Um, uh, again, as I said, my assistant had, loves statistics, so you can see the people that we have served, and this was made, um, and this was put together at the beginning of October, so we've served even more individuals from that, and that is just starting February. So we're talking February to October. This is the amount, uh, the number of people that we have served and the, the things that we're seeing, the mental health is super high out there and we're trying to address that as well. And we have a 77% positive housing placement with them as well. And that's a 90 day program because it is housing first. We do get county money for that. Is that it? Oh, there it is. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Emily. I'm not. Um, so this is our impact. We this past year housed 183 people. Um, if we, you know, if I just wish we could do more. We do, we I say this to you every single year. We have a very small homeless population. We're lucky in that regard. And as you can see, we can we can take care of that with the people that want it. We'll never get rid of homelessness. We won't. We've had them forever as long as all of us have been around, but there's going to be those, the greatest majority of them, and I say 85 to 90% that we can help with proper services. And um, that's, I'm not gonna go into that soapbox of mine. Many of you have heard it, so. So I think that's my presentation. Thank you very much for the presentation. I'm gonna open it up to public comment. I close public comment. I don't have a whole lot to, to add. I just want to say thank you. Uh, one of my favorite programs, one of my favorite people. You guys thank are just you. amazing. So thank you for carrying the torch and backbone, doing what you do. It's just so impressive to see you continue to grow and, and keep being impressive. And I, I hear you on the, we can get to 85 or 95 percent and hopefully there's, there's room in the future for expansion. So just yeah. a big thank you to you and your team. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank Council you. Councilmember uh, um, just kind of extending the uh, gratitude of the service that you guys particularly provide and both those uh, destinations is really essential uh, towards helping uh, women, uh, men with kids, uh, women with kids trying to get on their feet. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, it's, it's a very uh, challenging uh, topic. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of different, you know, issues that people have, but, um, you know, I, I think that um, the fact that we have that service and people committed to it, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of that. Thank, Thank you. you. And oh. last thing, uh, one of your previous <laughs> residents is um, one of our, uh, one of uh, one of my students currently at Salon College, and so um, fabulous. I love that. Awesome. Councilmember Wiley. I also wanted to say thank you for all that you do and the fact that you know you're here at city council and working with the city but you're also working so hard with the community mm -hmm. i saw you at church on sunday giving mm -hmm. a presentation a club i'm in said we're coming to this meeting and giving 
baking goods for Opportunity House. So thanks for what you do and how to make yourself available to the community. You're welcome. Thank Vice you. Mayor Stockton. Yes, thank you for the presentation. Thank you for doing amazing work in our community and helping those that, that need it the most. Um, how can the community, as well as the city, continue to help you and help you fundraise and do some of the great things that that you are doing in Vacaville? Well, thank you for asking I that feel question. Like that's the setup <laughs> I didn't even no I didn't way. even talk to him about. So as you may or may not know, Festival of Trees is going on right now. Uh, Thursday tomorrow. Uh, gosh, what is today? I forget. Thursday is our Winter Wonder Walk that we um, collaborated with the downtown Vacaville. Uh, trees will be out there. You can do a hot cocoa wine stroll. See Santa, the Grinch, Vacaville ba or Royal Ballet Company. I mean, uh, Vaca High. Jepson, Will see Wood, I have like almost every single school band and orchestra is gonna be out downtown Merchant and Main Street and Parker on Thursday from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. So that's a fun way, go look at all the trees, place some bids, uh, that's really good. We just had uh, one of our big supporters, he said pick a tree and I will pay for it, the buy now price right now and we'll put that in the shelter and he did that today. So I'm super excited. I got to pick, pick a really fun. No, he, he gave me a limit. I'm not going to tell you because for you, Mayor Ron, I would say it would be, you know, not as. <laughs> I would be, pick different numbers based on who you were. Right, right. So he was uh, he was very generous, and he's going to actually get Salesforce that he works for match that. So um, that's really cool. Come to Gala, uh, November 28th. We still have tickets available. Love to see you all there. Um, it's going to be super fun. Santa Claus list, peppermint twist. See, you shouldn't open the door. And um, we've got entertainment and a special guest this year. So you got to come. It's at Sunrise. Awesome. Thank you. I promise it was just a quick. Yeah. Oh, and then I will just throw in there um, people are being generous, bringing coats right now. Um, one thing that we're always looking for is men's socks and underwear. Um, people never think about helping the men as much as the women, but we really need that. They're expensive. And um, as well as um, unexpired food and those toiletries. I mean, all, all, anything. You know, I've got a little couple that sends me $25 every month and they write like this. And they even asked me to send them a self-addressed stamped envelope. So I do that. They've done that every single month since I started in 2017. And it, it doesn't matter. You know, I look at homelessness as an elephant and that 25 bucks a month is a nibble. Cause how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, but nibbles work too. Right. I'm gonna make a motion to approve. All those in favor? Aye. Right. Yeah, please. So the, the comment I want to make really quickly as well, uh, Councilmember Stockton, um, we've been working with Colleen for, for years now to try and do something homeless service wise in Vacaville. They're probably the only provider, official provider that really is providing services to street homeless, um, not just the men and women in their shelter, but also the navigation services, outreach services. There's some local churches that do some food bank stuff and a few other things, but really they're the only official game in town for the most part. We've talked about a navigation center, a walk-in center, making their services stronger for years. I've toured with Ashley. I've been down in the creeks. We've talked about locations. And we have over a million dollars earmarked in the ARP funding for navigation services. I won't be here when you guys talk about it, but it's time we do something about homeless in Vacaville. We've got 100 people on the streets. It doesn't have to be a shelter. Colleen's already presented an amazing proposal. That's what we do to fix the problem is we actually put some money behind it and not just have them fundraise, but we actually develop a system where we have a walk-in navigation center like we developed with the other cities 
um, through the two by two. And so I just want to remind folks that is still sitting there. It's going to come back to you guys. I really hope they put a proposal in. I really hope you guys vote for it uh, when that comes back to the staff. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good night. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, item 9B, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the council. This next item is a presentation on the audit that was conducted on the Vacaville Police Department. And I will, um, as our presentation team led by Chief Ian Schmutzer comes down, I would just like to first, um, because I know there's going to be a lot of conversation about this, I would like to first express my thank you uh, to the council for your support to go this route. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of uh, change in the country um, and a lot of um, multiple requests made of the council to, to address social injustices in the country. And I appreciate the council's support of, of my effort to do an audit versus other uh, recommendations that were made. I'd also like to thank uh, Chief Smutzler for his leadership throughout this process. And most importantly, the men and women of the Vacaville Police Department for allowing yourselves to be put under a, a very bright microscope. Um, thank you. Um, this is only going to make us better and do great things for the community. So with that, I will turn it over to Chief Smutzler and the members from OIR. Thank you, City Manager, uh, Mr. Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the Council. Um, I, I'm pleased to be before you tonight with uh, Michael Giannacco and Stephen Connolly from OIR Group. We've gotten to know Stephen very well over the last, I think, 13 plus months. Um, I'm also here with little more than half of the executive team from the police department, so we'll be available for <laughs> questions or comments or any additional information you might need after the presentation. So with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Stephen. Thank you, Chief, and good evening, Mr. Mayor and, and Council. Um, we are happy to be back to, to provide you with um, a presentation about our report and, and hopefully the report itself will be something that provides a resource for, for the city and for the department going forward. So I have my colleague, the, the head of OIR group, Mike Janaco, and he's gonna take it from here. Only for a little bit. Um, just wanted to introduce myself again, uh, reintroduce myself. It's good to see you all. Um, this has been a, 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 quite a journey. We've learned a lot about the city of Vacaville. Vacaville, got it. And um, wanted to um, uh, tell you from Jumpstart that we have received nothing but cooperation from your police department, from your city family, and for that we're grateful. The report wouldn't be what it was, what it is, were we not. Uh, afforded that cooperation, that access, your city leadership and your city uh, uh, employees, your city manager, uh, city attorney, all of them have been extremely helpful uh, as we went through this journey. Uh, I'm going to tell you just that uh, OIR group, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, we have been involved in uh, providing oversight, independent reviews of police agencies up and down the state of California for over 20 years now. Our work is infused by the knowledge and experience that we've gained. We've seen what hasn't worked in some cities, in some police departments, um, and we discard those, but we have also seen things that have worked, and we have used that experience to import, um, to export what we have learned uh, with cities who have done well and improved in the way in which they provide public safety um, and use that experience, as well as our tour around the city, the outreach that the city performed um, that we were able to observe, and um, stakeholders that you were able to uh, provide us access to 
in our days and uh, our site visits that we've had over the course of the last year. Um, so I'm gonna turn this back over to Steve to talk a little bit more about the scope of work and then I'll be back with uh, focusing on the recommendations. This is going to be a very high pass. Um, it's a lengthy report, there was a lot to say. Uh, 40 recommendations when you have had a busy agenda already. So we're not gonna go into detail, but we are going to be uh, available to answer any questions you might have. Steve? Thank you, Mike. So just a brief overview or brief uh, recap in terms of the scope of work, this project got started back in the fall of 2021. And as the city manager indicated, it was a response to some things that were going on uh, in the city and, and certainly on a national level in terms of new scrutiny of police agencies and uh, past practices and so forth. And, and as we say in the report, there were, there were impacts all over the country with, with um, reconsiderations and challenges to prior ways of doing things. And I know that you experienced that directly here in the, the city of Vacaville as well. So the, the audit was intended to be a wide ranging look at, at the department culture and operational systems. Some of the core topics that we were entrusted to cover included accountability, community relations, the internal review processes. And that was a big focal point of ours because that is where the agency itself has the opportunity to uh, address its issues, hold officers accountable where necessary, look for ways to improve, adjust policy, respond to uh, shifting community priorities and so forth. And we also looked at policy and procedure and, and the department's approach to training, which was, as we say in the report, and Mike will talk about, certainly one of the, the strengths, uh, one of the many things about the, the, the police department that was impressive to us. In terms of our methodology, as Mike said, we, we made a few different uh, in-person visits to Vacaville over the course of the 13 months of the project. We had interviews with uh, department personnel and all the folks in the back row tonight are people that I had the opportunity to meet and, and to sit with and, and to learn from. So I appreciated their assistance and, and was happy to see them again tonight. Uh, we attended the community forum that was sponsored in June of 2022. Uh, I know that there were some members of your council there and that was a project that was a, a long time in the making in terms of, again, part of the, the response, the citywide response to issues of uh, diversity and equity and inclusion with a focus on the police department. And we had, again, had the opportunity to attend that in person and, and experience some of the direct community uh, feedback. A lot of our work had to do with, with uh, review of documents that is sort of standard to our approach. One of the things that we like to do is, is actually look at the, the raw materials of the department's internal review process. So we asked for a number of different kinds of documents. And, and again, we got full cooperation with the department in that process and, and had the opportunity to use that as a jumping off point to understand the systems better to make some of our recommendations. And as Mike said, we are, were gratified by the full cooperation of, of the department, uh, its leadership, and certainly everybody else in the city that we had the opportunity to reach out to or, or to interact with. And uh, one additional thing that I certainly want to mention, although it's not included on the slide, is that there was a, a different opportunities for the public to be in touch with us, different ways that our project was kind of publicized. And we did have the opportunity to, to speak with a number of community members. People did reach out to us in, through emails and, and telephone conversations, and, and that perspective was obviously uh, important to us as well. 
In terms of our findings, uh, one of the, the uh, key things to understand is that obviously every agency is, is different. There's a lot of overlap and we find a lot of similarity in, in some of the, the different places that we go and the different issues that police agencies confront. Uh, but at the same time, each agency is, is a product of a lot of different factors and is distinctive in a lot of ways, and that was certainly true of our experience here in Vacaville as well. We certainly hope that our report reflects the many ways that we were impressed with, with the agency and the things that it does well. And one of the things that was most striking about our time here was, was the extent to which folks at every rank level of the agency seem to be unusually uh, proud to be working with the department, but also unusually committed to the, the city. Uh, as I'm sure you are well aware, many of the, the agency's members are residents of, of Vacaville and they have a, a strong personal stake in, in the community and, and that is very much reflected in, in terms of the the approach that the agency takes and, and just kind of the, the energy that we saw repeatedly. In terms, again, of our findings, one of the, the at a time when a lot of agencies are struggling to, to meet the demands of, of um, you know, kind of the normal demands or prior demands of the public, VVPD definitely uh, has maintained its commitment to a customer service model of, of being extremely responsive to the community and, and to the calls for service and the different requests that people make of it on a, on a daily basis. And I had a lot of different people say over the course of, of my time here that they really do pay attention to the little things with the idea that, that those things have an impact on, on lar potentially larger enforcement issues and strategies as well. It is a high morale agency, uh, but at the same time, it's one that is evolving in some important ways that we, that we tried to capture in the report in, in response, again, to changing public expectations, changing state laws, which I think is a very big factor in the way law enforcement has had to adapt in these last two or three years. And then last but not least, we heard different references along the way to the, the Vacaville way. Um, and, and it's an interesting term. I think it, it reflects on the one hand, a lot of the pride that people take in the city. And there is that, again, that attention to detail and the commitment that is expected of all members of the agency. And, and our experience was that was reflected in people's performance. But the flip side of that is, and, and we had people mention it to us sort of ironically as well, which a lot of times with an agency that has a lot of, um, a lot of attributes and, and enjoys a lot of community support and does its work with a great deal of dedication, it is sometimes uh, difficult to get, uh, ironically, those really high-performing agencies to take a hard look at themselves, to address accountability issues to the extent that they perhaps could or should, and last but not least, to look at other potential ways of doing things, get the input of outside voices and, and, and try to benefit from those. So um, again, our sense of the culture is, is a very positive thing, but we also feel like our, our, we hope our report identified some places where we would encourage the department to look at other potential systems and, and adaptations to some of the, the ways it approaches things. And that leads us into the next slide, which has to do with the room for growth in, in certain key areas. And I'm gonna turn it back over to Mike for this next part of the presentation. Um, as we go into our findings, I wanna stress one thing, which is um, 
you don't see anywhere in a report anything about a broken department. It has been a challenged department, but every department in the country has been challenged over the past two years. The pandemic, the George Floyd murder, um, the, the, the cries from the community for change and reform, some of them well thoughtful, some of them thoughtful, some not as thoughtful, has really placed um, police departments, public safety throughout the country in a crucible. And um, that cannot be understated. I think that by and large, uh, your city and your city's police department has met that challenge. We're not talking about a broken department. What we are intending to do with the 40 recommendations are to improve what is already a well-functioning department. And I wanna make sure that that is stressed. Um, there is room for growth. All departments can get better. And um, uh, what we have learned is particularly with regard to accountability, internal affairs investigations, complaint investigations, complaint intake, um, use of force review, uh, find way, finding ways to reduce uses of force, all those issues um, are not, the best practices are not widely shared among police departments and police agencies. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one of them is that so much of that has to remain confidential because the personnel investigations and state law requires that there's a lot of confidentiality. There are privacy rights under the Peace Officer Bill of Rights that certainly pertain. So it's very difficult for an agency to borrow. There's no book, there's no book in the library that you can check out with regard to best practices. So what we do is we use our experience, and as I said in our preface, prefacing remarks, we use that experience on what has worked well in other agencies and try to export that to the degree we think it will fit in the agency we're looking at. Um, one of the things that we do think there is room for growth is in the internal review process, as Steve indicated. Uh, when an incident occurs that um, doesn't go well, or when an incident occurs in which um, there is a need for an officer to use deadly force, or where there's an incident that results in a pursuit with injury, uh, those are critical incidents, um, potential high liability, um, but, but really uh, uh, need to be examined, not only with regard to individual accountability, that really is um, uh, not the main focus. The focus should be how can we learn from that incident so that we can uh, be better prepared the next time a similar incident happens. And there are a lot of tools that can be available and should be available with regard to that. But until you do a very fulsome um, and multifaceted review of the incident and pull it apart and do a debrief, um, you're not going to learn because you're not going to learn enough about what has occurred in order to learn. Um, some of, sometimes we get criticized for uh, suggesting there needs to be more Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, and, and, and I actually embrace that term. Um, the way I see it is that if, if the NFL on Monday morning gets all its players together and its coaches together and looks at the video and pulls apart good, bad, or indifferent, whether they won on Sunday or lost on Sunday, they're going to do that. And why are they going to do that? They're going to do that not just to, to put people on the taxi squad or demote people or put them on the second string or no longer have them start, although that is a potential consequence with regard to poor performance. But it's really, how can we do better? What did the guard do on this play? And if that can be done for a football game, why couldn't that be exported to public safety? And, and in our view, it could be and it should be. And we believe that uh, with regard to that uh, holistic review, 
uh, Vacaville PD could do Vacaville PD could do better with regard to that, and we offer suggestions um, about how to do that. Uh, the second thing is having to do with transparency. Um, transparency is um, something that we heard over and over from your community about an interest in having the police department to the degree that it's legally possible provide more information about the inner workings of the department. And that's it, whether that's through uh, use of force data, whether it's through a number of arrests, whether it's through calls for service, but to, there is, not to say there's nothing, but there can be more uh, that can be done in this area and we offer suggestions in our report uh, designed to do that. Um, what the next slide? Um, there were 40 individual recommendations and um, we're not gonna get into all of them, but we're certainly prepared to answer any questions that any of you all may have about them. Um, and um, essentially, as I said, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm gonna stress this, uh, but it really is to reinforce the work that is already being done by the department. Um, and, and, and to say that nothing is being done would be in, not only inaccurate, but um, uh, doing a disservice for your, to your police uh, department and its membership and its leadership. And, and not to say that there haven't already been reforms that, that, that exist without us. It, that to, one of the things we do look at is we look at uh, the arc of reform within an agency, and that becomes a barometer for us to test whether or not uh, things just stay stagnant and whether the department is simply reacting to the pressures or interests of, uh, uh, of individuals or community members or stakeholders or what have you. But, um, we found examples where the department on its own recognized that there was a need to get better. And that is, again, uh, indicative of uh, an agency that is willing to learn and will, is willing to improve within itself. Um, some agencies get very stagnant and don't improve, and they want to do things the way that it's always been. And we didn't see that in, at, at your police department. Uh, two examples are... Uh, uh, significant changes with regard to providing instruction and guidance to officers on vehicle pursuits. Vehicle pursuits are a high risk, high liability, uh, and, and dangerous activity um, for a lot of people, the, the subjects that's being pursued, the officer that is engaged in the pursuit, individuals who are in between and get caught, get caught in, the, in, the, in, the, in the situation. And so, um, the department has provided better guidance, better instruction, and, and um, has reformed the way in which officers are to pursue, provided different guidelines on whether to pursue, and um, all of those things, I think, are a testament to um, a department that's willing to, um, to change and to reform and improve. The second thing is this bias by proxy, um, which has uh, really been something over the past couple of years that has been really something that um, a lot of communities are starting to pay attention to. What that means is um, when it's the community that is actually uh, asking officers to perform uh, and, to, and to treat people of color disparately based on calls for service. Um, the typical call that would, would qualify as a bias by proxy as a call there are three people of color in my neighborhood that don't look like they belong. No further information, no evidence that a crime is being committed, just that they don't belong. And we want you to come here essentially telling uh, dispatch, we want you to come here and move them along. Um, and, and, and so in order to address that issue, 
the police department again has provided more guidance, more training to its dispatchers on how to deal with that kind of call so that uh, individuals don't get bothered simply because they are walking around in a neighborhood and somebody's decided they don't belong there. Um, so again, that's another example of how the department is responding to new challenges and, and in a good and productive way. We are um, getting, getting to the home stretch here. Um, Steve mentioned this. Um, the training uh, that the department provides its officers is very, very good. Um, you know, what we have seen in times of limited resources, some agencies where they often cut first is on training. That's not what we saw with regard to your police department. Um, we were, Steve was able to um, actually see a day of scenario-based training where the whole department was out and learning about perishable skills in a scenario-based training. This is not online learning. This is not classroom learning. It's scenario-based training, which is the most effective kind of training that uh, police officers can engage in. And we were very impressed with the degree of training there. Uh, the specialized unit, the SWAT unit, again, uh, we saw a, a extreme uh, uh, good qualities there, particularly with regard to when SWAT conducts an operation. They do that internal review. They do that um, debrief in a very effective way. Uh, the community response unit, uh, we thought was making great strides. Unfortunately, because of resource uh, strains, uh, they've had to be on hiatus for a bit. Um, and we talk about um, how we thought they were moving the needle and um, hopefully um, when resources become available, uh, that can be reinstituted. Uh, and we also talked, and you've already heard today in another on, on your agenda about some of the immunity, innovative community service programs, PAL, FIRST, um, that uh, the department is very involved in in your city. These are the challenges, uh, staffing and recruiting and hiring, not unique to Vacaville. Every department in the, state of, in the state of California is faced with that strain. Getting people, getting the right people, getting good people and retaining people are, are probably the number one challenge up and down the state of California with regard to public safety. Um, departments are competing for people, they're stealing from people, uh, you know, uh, people from other agencies. They're trying to find all kinds of ways to get um, staffed up and, and your, your agency is not immune to that. Um, uh, we do know that, that, that more, in our view, more can, could be done with regard to community engagement. That's not to say nothing is being done, but uh, more and more uh, agencies are looking for other ways to engage with its community in different ways. Coffee with a cop is a traditional way of doing it, but there need to be, in our view, uh, other ways to figure out how to uh, engage with the community. Um, we believe more could be done with regard to approach, approach to public transparency. Um, the new laws um, uh, are pushing uh, departments to be more transparent, uh, but in our view, um, uh, get out, our, our view and, and our recommendations are to get out in front of it and when you can be transparent, be transparent. Um, and then uh, I've already talked about the enhanced review protocols. We go to the next slide, Steve. Sure. Um, this just sums up, um, again, uh, some of the other ideas that we have. Um, and, and let me just say a little bit before I close, um, and, and then uh, certainly be available for questions. Uh, one of the things that um, we try to do is, is make the recommendations revenue, revenue neutral. And I would say the vast majority of our recommendations are, 
revenue neutral, but they're not all, they're not all revenue neutral. And we recognize that it's you all that ultimately make that decision. Uh, what we tried to do is we tried to come up with some uh, areas where we think uh, the community and the police department and public safety could be benefited based on our review, based on the re uh, information we received from your community, and all of that was distilled. And so we came up with three or four ideas that would re were not revenue neutral, but are, in our view are certainly worthy of consideration by you all as you move forward. And we recognize that there are limited resources and, and, and in an ideal world, um, uh, you know, all of this would be available. We, we realize the reality that it can't all be available and hard decisions need to be made and they already have been made during this time uh, where, you know, specialized units have been collapsed. So, um, so that, you know, the, the fundamental answering calls for service, which is really what public safety primarily does, uh, essentially, um, need to be filled and that's priority one. Um, but all these other specialized units, and again, if there is room in the budget to do that, it's just worthy of a look. Um, but that's ultimately, obviously, your decision and we would defer to you. We just, uh, as, as consultants, we um, put forward the ones we think that are uh, the ones most worthy of consideration uh, if there are times in which the money is available. A couple last slides. So just to wrap up with, uh, again, we just wanted to highlight a few of the recommendations that we have in some of the areas um, that we were focused on. Transparency is a big piece of a place where we feel like the department could make some additional strides in terms of its approach. And in our sense is that they are absolutely meeting the letter of the law to the extent that they are required to under the, the new paradigm and some of the new state statutes. But I think a lot of agencies are, are trying to, to be more proactive in terms of taking it, hey, accepting the new reality, recognizing that the benefit of the doubt is not as automatic as it used to be, and trying to turn it into an advantage and, and, and provide more information, more education with the idea that the more people understand about the, the work that the department is doing and some of the particulars, then oftentimes the more impressed and, and accepting of, of what they are seeing they're, that they're gonna be. And then certainly, the, as Mike was mentioning, the whole idea of, of resources is a, a significant issue. I think it has been one of the obstacles to transparency in the agency because it's very labor intensive. As we say in the report, it takes a lot of time and effort to produce those materials in an efficient way, consistent with law and privacy rights. But it, I think it's a it's a an investment worth making, and then lastly, several of our recommendations relate to the department's internal review mechanisms. We've mentioned that a lot, and and again because they are so critical, in our view, to the the health of a highly functioning agency, the ability to look at yourself and and make adjustments um, is is going to be as efficient or as effective as any outside imposed accountability or scrutiny and, and we saw some ways that the department could kind of tighten up or enhance those processes. So we'll stop now and, and obviously defer to um, any of the questions or comments that you may have and thank, thank you. you very much. I'm going to open up public comment. Good evening, council and city staff. I'm Joan Marquan Wilsey and I was able to participate in two of the public forums that were held for the police department and uh, the audit, and I wanted to encourage us to keep on doing it. Maybe quarterly, maybe something like that could work. 
And especially the second one where we had tables of discussion groups where people were able to share stories and ask questions of an officer representative or city staff member that was there. So I hope we can fund it and plan it and make it happen. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Hello, everybody. Uh, Ryan, local dad. I've uh, been a part of uh, some of the efforts that we've made over the past couple of years and um, just really want to give um, a thanks, gratitude to, to you all, uh, the city manager. Uh, May 2020 was, was a pretty wild time for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I, I remember at the time it was particularly stressful because as somebody who's been uh, relatively engaged in these conversations for, uh, for a couple of years. Having a number of friends, acquaintances, certainly people I didn't know, um, ask questions, come to realizations. Uh, it, it, was, it was pretty heavy. It was, it was a heavy burden. The, the, the best way I can put it was like, you know, a number of people coming up to me saying, hey, have you ever seen the color blue before? And I'm like, yeah, of, of course. Have, haven't you? Like, th this has been going on for, for quite some time. But I appreciate you uh, you come into the conversation, but um, you know, it was a really interesting time. And then a month later, a lot of organizations just kind of gave up because we didn't, we didn't solve racism uh, within a month. And this city, you know, um, for the past two and a half years has been dedicated, um, not only to, to communities of color, um, you know, around, but just uh, to the community at large. Uh, this police department, I've, I've gotten to know a couple of the members. They've been unbelievable in terms of um, really just putting their money where their mouth is and wanting to make sure that this is a community where all people feel safe and are valued. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a pleasure to, to, to work on it. And I know there's 40 recommendations. Um, I certainly don't uh, know what it takes to, to get all 40 of these done and, and what the process looks like. Uh, but I just want to make my commitment as a community member uh, to all of you here that I'm ready to serve, ready to help. Uh, and ensure that we're coming back year after year, looking back on these 40 recommendations uh, and checking our progress and making sure that we are where we are because Backville really has an opportunity to be the gold standard when it comes to transparency, uh, community, uh, community relations, um, and uh, just what, what community policing looks like going forward. So appreciate you all. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, close public comment. Any comments from the council? Councilmember Sullivan. Um, thanks for the report. I know it's been a long ongoing uh, effort. Um, uh, wasn't able to attend the public meetings because somehow I have stuff to do. Um, but uh, no, I think a lot of the time that I spent with uh, PD uh, from ride alongs, from attending different trainings, uh, different outreach events, uh, I think uh, what what you've observed is uh, very similar to what I've observed uh, growing up here. Uh, a lot of the, the kids I grew up with uh, in the, predominantly in the 90s, uh, we can still remember names, I'll, I'll not repeat them um, at, for professional reasons. Um, but uh, I, I will share that, um, that uh, a lot of these guys that uh, I'm really proud of because they're, they're doing what they can uh, with the skills that they have to provide a better future for their kids, a different pathway for their kids. Um, a lot of times they, they have uh, that history or experiences that they once uh, experienced um, 
like those are still still very vivid and it's very hard for they themselves to forgive um and um and kind of move forward uh for themselves but when they talk about their kids uh, and we talk about particularly policing uh you can you know they're very explicit in the fact that they want they don't want their kids to have the same perceptions that they do and from my personal experiences uh you know there's uh, i'm not naive to think that you know um, everybody's just trying to go along and mind their business um you know we still unfortunately have a couple of things that um, literally uh, pop off every once in a while unfortunately and um, so those those things those elements are still there uh, within particular areas throughout our community, uh, not just in low income, um, but those there's issues throughout uh, and that impact people from all socioeconomic groups. And so um, for me, I, I think really the key uh, when I got into this position and even before and whether or not I was even in this position or not, uh, was my goal to help bridge the gaps to where we don't, um, where we don't always perceive things to be this opposing force uh, where we're against one another. Because in reality, everybody wants to feel safe uh, and everybody wants to live a good quality of life. And it's unfortunate that we have all these complexities within our, within our society that the last, the, the line of defense that we call to address these issues are those, um, those guys in that undercover guy right there uh, sitting in the back. <laughs> so, um, I'm sorry. Now I'm gonna get a uh, so, um, but no, it's just, it's just, um, uh, anyway, so I, 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 you know, things are always going to be a work in progress and it'll be interesting to see, you know, 20, 30, 40 years along, you know, down the road on, on how things continue to change in our society and what our society expects, um, uh, of, of each other. Uh, and I think have always having the opportunity and encouraging opportunity for us to have that dialogue, um, to meet, uh, one-on-one. -on -one, um, to you know, to have those different experiences, I think that fundamentally allows us to look at each other as humans, and those different factors that, um, whatever those is that help hold us back, um, you know, personally and, and professionally, um, I think that's that's the way we can make a better world to where our kids don't have to deal with some of the the, the crap that uh, a lot of other folks have had to deal with, um, and sometimes that we get kind of caught up with. So. Um, just appreciate your, your efforts, your input, um, and I appreciate our police force, particularly for being so open, open book. Um, I personally don't like people up in my business. So, um, the fact that, uh, to hear that echo from you all, uh, just a great thanks to, uh, our Backville Police Department. Um, and then more particularly, uh, just echoing, just again, want to extend my appreciation to, uh, new chief, um, and all, and the staff that's been really dedicated towards. Uh, to exactly that, building more relationships within our community. So. Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's a pretty thorough report. I've had plenty of conversations with the police manager as well as other patrolling officers since I've been on council. Uh, but there is one big thing missing for, for me in here, which I brought up throughout the whole process. It's missing quantitative data. It's like there's some statements in here where it's like, could be true, could not be true. Maybe I don't know because there's no data actually telling me uh, what it is. Um, well, that's fine. It's like generally like opinions are, are good, but it's like when I have to make decisions off this and explain to constituents, if I can't justify the reason of those, oh, some lawyers said we should do this, that's not a good enough reason for me. 
Um, yeah, for example, one that stood out to me, it's on page 12. It says, and as a case in the many jurisdictions, block subjects figure uh, prominently in arrests and use of force, particularly in relation to their percentage and local population. Uh, there's an annotation for record keeping, but is like, I, I don't know if that's true or not because I can't see the numbers. And how does that number compare to comparable jurisdictions, like ones we're using for comps for, for labor? Is I think those would be good comparisons because there's similar cities, similar sized departments. Um, and so, yeah, it's, so if somebody just reads that, they think we might have a big problem um, if they don't read the rest of it. But data is very big, especially we're going to be spending money on and potentially a lot of money to go through some of these things. Uh, somewhere like a standard greatly exceeds minimum uh, post requirements. Well, it's good. Yeah, it says that we're doing a good job exceeding the requirements, but the, this is a public document, so the general public's not going to know what the requirements are. Maybe like you did for other ones, put the footnote in there on, hey, this is what the standard is, and then they exceeded it by this amount. Um, most of the recommendations weren't really a surprise. Uh, it's more of continuing what you've been doing because you've been doing a good job at it. Um, there is one that I don't agree with, which is just from personal opinion and experience, uh, was recommendation number eight. Uh, Vacuum PD should amend its officer-involved shooting protocol to ensure involved officers provide an initial statement about their actions and observations prior to viewing any related video recordings, including their own body-worn cameras. And in the paragraph about it, it says, statement to be pure in sense of being uncorrupted by outside influence by external recordings that do not reflect what the officer actually was observing due to vantage point, lighting conditions, and or officer focus. Well, somebody that's actually been in quite a few firefights through a couple deployments. Um, yeah, you're dealing with, yeah, adrenaline dumps, cortisol dumps, uh, loss of fine motor skills, tunnel vision. So the pure vision, uh, pure whatever they're looking at, isn't necessarily reliable. In fact, memory is probably one of the most unreliable things that's out there. So giving your body time to recover from that physiological freakout is probably the best thing to do, not just for the officers, but the people related in that, that have maybe witnessed it. Because if you haven't experienced that before, anything that level of possible violence or that level of adrenaline, um, yeah, it can really affect what you're seeing. So if you don't have time to recover from that, it's very, very difficult to give accurate statements and recall appropriately. In fact, like seeing a video, like might, yeah, jot your memory, which is what some people are afraid of, but it'd probably be a more accurate statement in the end. Um, so all of it, that's one of my biggest, uh, or terms of recommendations that I don't actually agree with. I think they should take the full 48 hours, 72 hours, but it should be afforded to anybody that was witness that or involved in that. Uh, it kind of leads into number nine, <coughs> promote the acquisition of interview with all involved personnel prior to the end of shift. Yeah, if they're, if they're up for it, if it's like maybe 12 hours later before the end of their shift or something, but I really think it should be, yeah, we should keep that 72 hours just to recover. Other than that, like I said, most recommendations I agree with, there's always room for improvement. Uh, after action reviews, military, we do them all the time. Like 
after every exercise or action that we do, we have to do them. They're generally pretty thorough because commanders have to read them. Um, but for me, uh, I, overall, I think it's good, but I think it's incomplete. Like I'd like to see an annex with the data that supports all of your findings. Um, so for me, that's, that's my thoughts on it. I'd really like to see the annex to supplement this. Thank you very much, Councilmember Ritchie. Uh, thank you so much. Um, you know how long a voice lasts for is a conversation. Um, I appreciate uh, Councilmember uh, Roberts' kind of analytical kind of approach. I'm gonna go back to kind of where Silva was. Um, I was really proud to be selected for the committee, had an opportunity to talk to you. Your uh, kind of your analogies of football, something that I've been saying day one. I started with that. I appreciate uh, the member of the community. He was on the council. It's amazing hearing his speech, and it really echoed to like what I feel as a strong as a black man in America. Um, these men and women here are one of the reasons why I'm here. Um, I've, had, I've had a lot of experiences. I, I, don't, I don't have the data. I've been on both sides of it. I'm starting to laugh how I ended up here. Um, I've had a lot of experiences in Vacaville and throughout California. And it was amazing what these officers, they instilled something to me where I knew what was right and wrong. Different. When I had interactions with other cities, I can tell the difference of what was right, normal, and wrong, because I grew up in a community where that wasn't normal for me to be treated as violently or as horrible as I had been in other places. Like that really instilled something in me. I want to make sure that, yeah, 2020 was a hot mess. But what I saw going on throughout the country, I knew I don't want that inception to come to my. I don't want what was happening to be seen as like something that comes to fruition. And all of a sudden, we're going to accept this new norm. These people are, are bad. So I really, it's one of the things I ran on. I'm mean, six foot four, 300 pounds, and I've had a very adventurous life. And so I've, I've had the ability to engage with Faculty PD and other officers for LA. And it's, it's been a great experience. And when it came to the football team, I use an analogy when I first talked to you on, on the Zoom, and now we have a great team. I play college football. You can never stop improving. The fact that you guys came as like a outside team, coaches, came and you analyze them, you know, policy, procedure, and protocol. You can always do something better. The fact you guys came in, they opened their, their doors, transparency, you found out what's right, working well. Um, like, we have a great new coach. We have, we have our captains right here. And from the report, it looks like the whole squad is really buying in, and they're really happy with the direction we're pointing. We have the crew. Now, Warner Donation, like, that's a special team. We gotta get them stronger. SWAT is just nailing it. You know, they come in clutch. It's amazing, you know, what we have. And I don't want to get into details of transparency. We always something better. Like no one's perfect. You identify things that, thank God, are things that you can fix, repair, and kind of transition that aren't critical. They're not critical problems. Right? We have a structural breakdown in. The mental integrity, morals, the barometer, the compass is off. That's a problem. Like there's, there's some apartments that they're just different, and you can't fix it. It's a culture, and it's that's not here. And so, when I saw the report, it was amazing. Everything that was wrong is easily fixed. And when you have a culture, it's hard to change. It's like cancer, once it sets in, really hard to change. So, I really appreciate the analogy you guys did, and I always stand up for these guys because. They helped me kind of shape my experiences and other 
other times, like, you know what? You know, there's bad police, but not bad police officers, but forces. That cop might have had a problem. I've always been able to identify he's had a bad day. Not police in general that are bad. Maybe that guy's a POS, right? I don't know. I should have just said that. But it's just you're able to slowly know, you know what? This isn't a structural problem. That guy's a problem. And so I really appreciate what you guys did. I mean, it's, I think the community really needed this. And this, you know, everything I saw on report is easy. It's really easy to fix problems. But I've seen other places that it's, cool. it's, it's, it's not as simple as, oh, put, put something in the lobby so people can get forms easier to file a report for complaints. Like, that's an easy problem. Like, what's happening in some other parts down south, it, that's a structural problem. So I, I really think I, I appreciate them opening up their, their hearts and the transparency and allowing us to really see, gosh, we have, we have an amazing department. It's like a team. We can improve a few things, but we're all doing the right. And so it's, I really appreciate you guys. You know, they helped me kind of have my why, what I'm gonna do. I wanna make sure that other men, looking at myself, Willie Silva, had the opportunity to realize, you know what? You have an opportunity to do the right thing in life. And you have to have kind of cause and effect and take accountability. You know, as long as you're doing the right thing, be always happens. But take the accountability in yourself to do the right thing and allow yourself not to have prejudice against them. And they will not have prejudice against us. It can't be this us against them. I think really instilling that thing, like we have the community engagement, like we're doing the district commanders. It's gonna work, it's new. Right, it's going to do better. Like I always, I always make comments that if long as I'm here, I don't care if I have to buy 30 AC units. If it, if cops want to drive around 100 degrees, windows down, just so they can throw the peace sign up and wave at kids, like that interaction when I was a young kid made it different. You know, like having cops actually like, hey, what's going on, man? Like acknowledge you, it, it just kind of changed you a little bit. Like there's, there's things we can do to engage. And enhance community engagement. There's little things like houses made by bricks. We're not trying to fix it all at once, but I think these guys and, and women have an awesome, awesome team, and I'm just proud. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Mayor Stockton. Thank you for the presentation. As you know, I was very critical when you came the first time. I had some um, concerns just because I love um, living in Vacaville, and the reason I love living in Vacaville is because we have. Uh, very brave men and women in our public safety that make Vacaville um, a place that is safe. Um, and I, I am in law enforcement. I don't work for Vacaville PD, but I live in Vacaville, and that's not a coincidence. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get too far into some of what my colleagues said, but um, I, I do agree. I think you offer a lot of reflection that could um, that could have some additional um, factual premises to, to kind of strengthen. Um, transparency, I think, is why we went through this whole process, right? Um, we wanted to make sure, and I'm not surprised, that you had no problems from um, anyone in our organization, whether it was the police department, the city manager, the city council, or anyone else. Um, but what I will tell you is I'm, I'm very impressed with the two citizens that came up here and spoke. Thank you for staying. Thank you for going through the process. Thank you for giving us feedback and being engaged in what we were hoping to accomplish by going through this, because it does matter. It 100% matters. Um, 
you know, I think um, Chief Schmutzler has a lot of homework to do. Um, you know, I, uh, one of the things that I was hoping was in this report was maybe a response from the chief or from the administration regarding maybe providing some more depth to some of your recommendations because just looking at the 40, um, many of which have overlap, I think that we're doing a lot in these areas, but yes, there, there are certainly things that we can improve upon. Um, but o overall, um, I just, I recognize that, that society is going to place the perceptions on policing from the nation on our little local PDs. It's unfair, but it is, I think, um, part of accepting the new reality. And it's been a tough pill to swallow. I, I swallow it too, every day. But what I wanna tell you is, is that um, I know that our police department has been going through a lot. I know that our staffing levels, um, which hopefully I will get some more information on staffing levels, um, are probably lower today than they were 10 years ago. And we have more we have fewer people doing more with less. And nobody's given up. People are still out there taking care of business, um, treating the public with dignity, respect, and looking for ways to improve. And I'm proud of you. And I will continue to fight for you and advocate for you because more often than not, you get it right. And you're always trying to do the right thing. We don't always get it right, but you're always trying to. And so um, I, I appreciate the process. I appreciate um, what the men and women of Vacaville Police Department are doing every single day. You're why Vacaville is an amazing city. So thank you. Councilmember Wiley. Uh, thank you for the report. I thought it was very comprehensive. Uh, it's interesting. I've never been in fire, fire things situations before, but I was, in questioning when you talked about doing the statement before the video and then later in the report you gave your reasons but when we look at the the 40 recommendations that's when it's up to our pd leadership to look at the recommendations to look at the practice and to see what is the best for vacaville because we can't say okay there's 40 recommendations get them done in six months because that doesn't always it's not going to work and so I thought it was a good report and it will be up to our department to see which is the best way for Vacaville and let's look at these recommendations. Um, I also was glad to hear that there was great cooperation from the department and it's so nice to have such a variety of specialized areas in our police department. It was said very clearly in the report that we're 14 officers below our budgeted maximum. So it's not that we're not budgeting money, we're looking for bodies, qualified bodies, to fill those positions. And if we had 14 more bodies in the positions doing quality work, then it would be different too. Because I know everyone is working above and beyond their situation. So hiring is a big situation and we wanna be a place where people wanna come. Um, so implementing those 40 recommendations will be up to the department, how it's going to be, what are the, what are the priorities and tackling them as Colleen said earlier, a little bit at a time, not here's 40, go at it. 
But I would say use of force based on what we've seen, you know, that's one thing to look at with lawsuits and everything else. Um, and I do also really appreciate the community involvement and the meetings and think that that's a good way to continue going forward and the district, uh, the district patrol people, um, that's a good thing too. So thanks very much for the report and for your work. We'll move to item 9D, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Vacaville PD. Appreciate all, everything. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Okay, so Mr. Mayor, uh, members of the council, this next item before you is a resolution of the city council approving the MOU with our fire management group, as well as merit increases for city manager and city attorney. We have Jessica Bose, our uh, human resources director, and Ken Matsumi, our uh, finance director. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Uh, as the city manager introduced, this is uh, regarding the FMG Fire Managers Group, MOU. Um, a little bit of background on the FMG group. The contract expired on October 31st of 2022. This group includes a total of six employees, five battalion chiefs and one deputy chief in the fire department. The process that we go through for negotiations uh, with this group and all of our groups is a data-driven one. And we use comparable agencies, consumer price index, recruitment retention data. Uh, we always look at the union proposals. And then of course the city's budget are taken into to account as well. Uh, the negotiation team receives direction from the council after all this data has been presented to them. And then we meet with the group and keep the council updated. I'll go into a little bit more detail on that. Um, so when we reach total agreement and ratification, what that means is that during the process, the negotiation team meets with the group and then reports back to the council in closed session. This process repeats itself until the team reaches total tentative agreement with the group. A total tentative agreement reflects the good faith effort to put forward an agreement that both parties support and that will receive approval from the respective constituents. FMG took a vote of their membership and reached ratification on the agreement proposed to you tonight. The agreement is being presented as a strike through document that's attached to the staff report and following council approval, all track changes would be accepted and the final document would then be signed by the respective parties as stated on the signature page. Then uh, we would place the document on the city's webpage. So as you can see in the strike through version, there's a lot of details and changes. Here is a list of um, the most, uh, the biggest changes for the term and conditions of this agreement. In summary, it's a three year term now through October 31st of 2025. Uh, the cost of living adjustments include 4% each year through 2024. There's an increase in city contributions to deferred compensation, starting with a 2% increase and followed by 1% increases in the following two years. This would bring the total city contribution for this group to a 6% city contribution, which matches all of our other management groups across the city. Uh, it's also, uh, city recognition of the Juneteenth holiday, which we added to all the other groups in the last round of negotiations, a $500 increase in tuition reimbursement and allowance for student loan repayments through that program. 
and an adjustment to compaction calculation and clarification of the elements that are used to calculate that compaction. It's important to encourage promotion from the lower ranks below this group. And to do so, we need to maintain a certain uh, differential. So to do so, we established a clear list of compensable items to be included when calculating the compaction. That list did not exist before. While there was compaction language and amounts, it didn't include a list of the items to be included in that calculation. So the compaction adjustments will be made incrementally to establish a 21% differential between the fire captain and the fire battalion chief, and a 9.25% between the battalion chief and the, and the deputy chief by the end of the term. To get there, these amounts are 0.2%, uh, 0.2%, and 0.502% in each of the three years, in addition to the COLAs listed above. It's also important to note that due to the compaction language, if the Backville Firefighters Association negotiate anything higher than the above COLAs or increases in other specialty pays that are included in the, in the um, compaction calculation language, that those increases would automatically apply to the fire managers as well to maintain the contractual differentials. As with many of our groups, we do clean up language in each round of negotiations. These included additional PERS reportable language for transparency purposes, clarification on cash out rates, and changes to department titles. Also included in your item tonight are the annual merit increases for the city manager and city attorney. The amounts are 2.17% for both positions. These are effective one year past their last merit increase. And the new annual salaries are listed here on this slide. Uh, while labor negotiations and labor relations touch on several of the strategic plan goals and initiatives, the focus starts in three initiatives for A, B, and C. And the successful completion of the process that impacts goals one, three, and four. The fiscal impact of this agreement is $81,000 in the current fiscal year, $550,000 over the term, the majority of which comes from the general fund, but the city manager's salary is funded through community development, sewer, and water funds as well. Uh, all costs do include roll-ups uh, to reflect the increase in the pension normal costs. Our recommendation is by simple motion to adopt the subject resolution and we're available for any questions. Thank you very much. I'm gonna open the public comment. I close public comment. Entertain motion. All those in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Perfect. Unanimous. We'll move to item E, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. This next item before you is a presentation from our budget team um, to give you uh, your first quarter update on this new fiscal year, as well as to present to the Council for your consideration tonight. Uh, new budget adjustments for expenditures for um, some key uh, elements of our um, operations. Also included for tonight's, uh, as part of the presentation, um, you may recall at the, one of the last meetings we had a request from council to explain um, some background behind the um, fire station medic 72. And so as part of the presentation tonight, you'll hear from our fire chief uh, to talk about the positions request as well as how we um, got to that decision. So with that, I'll turn it over to Ken and his team. Thank you, Mr. City Manager. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the council. Next slide, please. So to start off the presentation, we're gonna um, provide an update on how fiscal year 22, so this prior fiscal year ended, 
Uh, the comparison here is um, sort of the actual results after, um, now that we know how much revenues came in and expenses were made in 2022, comparing that, which is in the very far right column, to what we were projecting back in uh, on June 28th. So um, our fiscal year runs from July to June, but we're still getting revenues that come in in July and August that relate to the prior fiscal year. We're still paying invoices as well. And so um, that's why the numbers will change even after June. And so um, as you can see from kind of both columns, um, the, the difference, if we're looking at uh, the general fund surplus without Measure M back in June, we were uh, projecting that we would finish with a surplus of 2.1 million. And then when you add in Measure M and look at the general fund in total, um, we would have a surplus of 14.5 million, giving us a total general fund reserve of a little under 56 million or 52%. The actual results really finished in line with uh, what we were projecting. So if we're looking at um, the general fund without Measure M, we were at 1.2 million. And then when you add in Measure M to that, looking at the total general fund, you're looking at a reserve again, slightly under 56 million and a 51% reserve. Uh, the reasons for the change on the revenue side are kind of laid out on the section on the left. So we did see sales tax go up a little bit higher than we were projecting back in June. Measure M did go up a lot um, as well. And then uh, property tax, we did see a bump with that June payment that we received um, compared to what we were projecting. And on the expense side as well, that did go up. A lot of that has to do with something that we've been seeing with COVID where um, on services supplies, so the supply chain issues, um, we're seeing a lot of invoices and kind of uh, delivery of goods that happened towards the last quarter, the last quarter of the fiscal year, as opposed to earlier. Um, prior to COVID, usually around 30 to 35% of our, our service and supplies expenses would take place in that fourth quarter. During COVID and even this last year, we've kind of seen that more in the 40% range. So there's a bump up there. And then also overtime was something that um, was a lot higher than we were projecting when we um, were estimating this back in so um, over the next several slides, our uh, budget analyst, John Collette, will be going over the Q1 trends and revenues. Thank you, Ken. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the council. This part of our presentation focuses on revenue trends through first quarter of the current fiscal year, fiscal year 23. The trends are based on actuals uh, through the first three months of the fiscal year, July through September along with updated sales tax estimates from our consultant, HDL. Sales tax accounts for approximately 20% of the city's general fund revenue, and Measure M consists of 17% of the city's general fund revenue, for a combined total of 37%. Through first quarter, combined sales tax was $13 million for fiscal year 23, represented by the green line on the graph to the right, and that's compared to $12.9 million in fiscal year 22, an increase of 0.8 last fiscal year. Just below the green line, we've separated sales tax and Measure M, so we can look at them separately. Sales tax is represented by the blue, the blue column and Measure M by the yellow column. We received $7 million in sales tax through first quarter. This is a decrease of approximately 4% last fiscal year, and Measure M has received $6 million first quarter, an increase of 7% compared to last fiscal year. Some key categories that HDL is projecting to do well in fiscal year 23 are restaurants and hotels, fuel and service stations, and building construction. Other taxes besides property, sales, and Measure M taxes account for approximately 19% of the city's total general fund revenues. Through first quarter, revenues are 4.1%. 4.1 million, which is a decrease of 6.8% last fiscal year. 
and taxes in this category consist of franchise tax, paramedic tax, transient occupancy tax, excise tax, business license tax, and real property transfer. A couple of significant impacts seen through first quarter are franchise tax fees, which are down 9% compared to last fiscal year. Uh, more significant, the transient occupancy tax, or TOT, uh, is, which is a tax based on local hotel stays, saw a decrease of 22% compared to last fiscal year. There were a couple of factors uh, leading to the decline. The first is TOT saw a significant increase last fiscal year due to the state opening back up from the pandemic uh, and consumers had a pent up demand to travel. This was a significant boost for revenues uh, for hotels and restaurants. So we're starting to see that flatten out now. The second reason for the decrease is consumers are seeing higher fuel prices along with increased inflation and worry of a recession. Again, uh, the last slide showed HDL anticipating a slight increase in hotels and restaurants for fiscal year 23. So we'll continue to monitor the category uh, and see if it picks back up or if it's going to be a trend for fiscal Department charges and fees revenue category accounts for approximately 11% of the city's total general fund revenues. This category contains the charges and fees for all departments uh, with parks and rec and paramedic fees being the majority of the revenues in the category. Through September revenues uh, were at 3.1 million for current fiscal year, which is slightly above last fiscal year and a 72% increase for fiscal year 21. And that was uh, at the height of the pandemic lockdown. Through first quarter, Parks and Recreation continues to see revenues improve. And this is really carrying over from fiscal year 22 when we started seeing the recovery in their activities and programs. Specifically programs that were directly impacted by the limitations from state and local mandates in the prior fiscal year, fiscal year 21, uh, due to the pandemic. Actual revenues through first quarter for Parks and Rec saw an increase of 35.6% compared to last fiscal year and revenues are slightly below pre-pandemic levels, still trending in the right direction. We're seeing increased activity in many of their programs through first quarter with aquatics, adult sports, youth sports, BPAC, and, and gymnastics really increasing uh, at the highest rate. On the other side, paramedic fees or ambulance revenue has seen a decrease of approximately 20% first quarter compared to last fiscal year, and this is due to uncollectible billings first three months. At this point, we don't anticipate this to be a trend, uh, but we'll continue to monitor the billings and work with our provider Whitman to, to provide an update at mid-year. Overall, department charges and fees are slightly up in the first quarter, and we expect that slight increase uh, to continue for the remainder of fiscal year. That concludes first quarter revenue trends, and I will pass it over to our budget manager, Leslie Hoover, for budget augmentations. Good evening, thank you, council. I will be going over our proposed budget augmentations tonight. Budget augmentations are needed when items arise after budget adoption. Tonight, we do have several augmentation requests for council's consideration, totaling $960,438. While we typically wait until mid-year update in February to bring additional position requests due to the upcoming Fire Academy in January and the impact of current workloads, we are bringing 10 positions and other personnel-related items tonight. 
All requests tonight are funded through the general fund. The first position for your consideration tonight is a public safety dispatcher in the police department. During the fiscal year 23 budget process, the department requested three dispatchers and only two were recommended for approval with the adoption of the budget. This additional position is the next step in a multi-phase plan to update and modernize the communication center. Bringing the total authorized staffing to 24, the fiscal impact in the current year is 74,500 with a future ongoing cost of 119,500 per year. Along with adding a dispatcher, we're also asking for the council to approve expanding the current hiring incentive program previously approved for police officers back in November, 2021 to the lateral dispatcher position. Recruitment for qualified lateral public safety dispatchers continues to be a challenge for the city of Vacaville. Since January, 2019, a dozen dispatchers have retired, resigned, or been released from probation. The retirements and resignations creates a gap in institutional and operational knowledge that can only be filled by experienced lateral dispatchers. Increased call volume coupled with technology advances has increased overall staffing needs in the communication center. Currently, there are five unfilled vacancies, which leads to mandated overtime for existing staff. Our current recruitment, which has been open since March 2020, has resulted in less than 45% lateral level applications. Furthermore, other agencies are offering recruitment incentive incentives, which impact our ability to attract and hire lateral applicants. In order to increase the city's competitive edge, staff is proposing a $20,000 $20, hiring incentive spread over four years in $5,000 increments. Matching the police hiring incentive program, which has resulted in the hire of nine new police officers to date. The amount requested tonight is $20,000. The next augmentation for your consideration tonight is for our fire department which our fire chief will be discussing in more detail with the next few slides. However, in summary, a total of nine full-time buffer positions at the firefighter or firefighter paramedic level to decrease overtime and increase minimum staffing to prevent future critical staffing shortages are being requested. Assuming six will start the academy this January and three lateral positions in May of 2023, the current fiscal your cost is just over $580,000 with an ongoing cost of approximately 1.8 million annually. In addition to staff, there's also requests for additional one-time budget for fire academy costs, along with personnel outfitting supplies in the amount of just over $285,000, thus bringing the total cost of the fiscal year 23 fire academy to just over $606,000. At this point, I will pass the presentation over to our fire chief to discuss the fire department's request in more detail. Two stages. Uh, first, I'm gonna talk about, I guess been requested to talk about uh, the Medic 72 brownout that's been going on, uh, why it happened, why, why the decision was made. Um, and then why specifically Medic 72 other rather than one of the other four ambulances um, because Medic 72 is the busiest one. So um, staffing shortages uh, necessitated Medic 72 be browned out 
in th three different times, if you will. The first time was for a period of 27 days between June 8th and July 5th. Um, we had an academy graduate uh, that was supposed to be filling, um, was supposed to be filling uh, vacancies created by some retirements, but we had some uh, folks leave for other agencies, which was unanticipated. Um, so that was the kind of the trigger that necessitated that June 8th, July 5th, um, that June 8th, July 5th uh, uh, brownout. Uh, then uh, we brought it back in service on July 5th and between July 5th and September 23rd, which is the next, uh, the beginning of the next long-term brownout, um, there were eight days out of that two and a half month period. We brought it back in service, but there were eight days where we had no one left um, to, to force to work. Um, so we had to brown it out for a 24 hour period. So there was eight separate 24 hour periods uh, that we had to brown it out during that period. And then um, since September 23rd um, to now, um, it's a total of 53 days going on, 54 days. Um, so total um, in uh, uh, since uh, June 8th, we've it, it's been browned out for a total of 88 days so far. The precipitating event or the 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 the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, um, on September 23rd, and why I felt like I had to make the the tough decision to brown it out again for a long period of time, uh, was because we had uh, numerous uh, folks that uh, were out on long-term either injury or illness or other uh, protected leaves, and they were out for a long period of time. So uh, I do want to make it clear that uh, the decision to brown out Medic 72 was an operational decision made by me um, based on the data, based on this, the staffing crisis that uh, we were experiencing at the time. I felt that um, it was necessary. We just didn't have um, enough, any people left really to force to work, if you will. Um, so uh, the, the reasons why we made those operational decisions is um, through uh, since November of uh, 2021, we've had um, six other uh, six firefighters leave for other agencies. Um, I've been notified that uh, we've got uh, two more um, that are uh, in backgrounds for uh, other agencies. Um, there's also a sudden increase in long-term absences, as I talked about before, due to protected leaves. It includes uh, long-term injuries, whether uh, work-related or non-work-related illnesses, as well as uh, CFRA protected leaves, kind of like baby bonding um, and, and things like that, which uh, takes folks out of um, service and um, um, and, and leads to long-term long-term absences, if you will. Um, to try to bring in quickly, uh, we tried to do a lateral recruitment uh, for paramedics when we had the initial four uh, paramedics leave for other agencies. We tried to do a lateral recruitment because we had six vacancies. We tried to hire um, six uh, paramedics um, back earlier this year. And unfortunately, that recruitment only yielded um, two. So we were only able to fill two of the six vacancies we had at the time. Um, and then uh, the other thing is we've seen a sudden increase in, in, the, in the amount of forced overtime. You go back, looking at data, uh, we had a similar number of uh, vacancies back in 2017. Um, and it, that, that year, the number of uh, the, the number of 
the percentage of hours that were being worked that was forced on somebody where you know somebody was having to work against their will, if you will, um, it peaked at about, uh, I think, 9% for one month. Most of the times it was either 0, 1, or 2% for the month. Um, fast forward to 2022, about the same number of vacancies, carrying about the same number of vacancies. Uh, we peaked in August. Um, we were forcing 40% uh, of the hour, the overtime hours being worked was being forced on someone. So that means somebody was being held. Um, so they'd have childcare issues at home, but they're being held, they're being forced to, 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 be, uh, to, to stay at work. So those are, uh, those are the reasons um, why I had to make the, the tough decision to, to brown out the uh, uh, Medic 72. Next slide, please. So uh, many people have asked why Medic 72. Medic 72 is, is, the, is the busiest ambulance that we have, but it's also located in the center of this. It's the most centrally located. Um, and it's busy because it's the most centrally located. And it seems counterintuitive that we take our busiest ambulance out of service, but it really does make a lot of sense. We put a lot of deputy chiefs back there. Um, he uh, crunched a, a bunch of numbers as far as the data is concerned, um, anticipated um, effect to the response times. We knew it was gonna have anticipated uh, effect to response times. Looked at uh, GIS data and uh, by browning out Medic 72 rather than one of the other four that were on the periphery of the city, it most equally uh, redistributed the work of Medic 72 to one of the other four. It equally distributed it to one of the other four. And we felt that by one of those ambulances going into the center of the city into Medic 72's area, it would have the least negative effect um, or least negative impact on our response times. Now, if you look there, we did, um, we had anticipated that, um, that there was going to be a response. We, we projected that there was going to be about a 60 to 90 second uh, delay as far as ambulance response times uh, were concerned. Um, and uh, we crunched the numbers and for the time, this is um, up until about uh, two weeks ago, I believe. Um, and looking at the averages of as far as the response time. So we looked at it um, in station 72's response area. Um, the first unit on scene, uh, the response time increased by five seconds. Um, the ambulance response time increased by one minute and five seconds. And it does have an effect because you're taking one unit out of service throughout the city. So now you've got fewer units responding to all of the other calls. Um, so the first unit uh, response time um, outside of uh, everywhere else, or citywide actually increased by an average of 11 seconds and ambulance response time. So the, the going down from five ambulances down to four ambulances did have an effect of increasing our overall response time uh, throughout the city by 32 seconds. So um, that is a, that's an update on um, Medic 72. Did you want me to talk about uh, the nine buffer positions before answering questions on? Uh, you can. Okay. Um, is it, are you gonna speak on it now? I was, yeah, I was planning on speaking on the, the nine buffer positions and why we were we were asking for that, so. <clears throat> I, I do have a lot of concerns okay. and I am absolutely 
very, very disappointed right now. Uh, I had no idea that this was a huge staffing shortage. Uh, the crisis, the staffing crisis, he said staffing crisis. We're not doing anything. Um, I'm very disappointed and I know people paint this whole thing for the nation and I'm not being critical of you, not being critical of everything. This this council sitting up here, our city manager. I, I don't know how we're we're letting this happen. I know that we went to the public and we begged them for more money, Measure M. And what we did was we put a firefighter up there and we put a police officer and we said, we're going to make sure that we keep our staffing levels with that money up. Uh, we were browned out before Measure M put Measure M in place saying we will not brown out again. And now you're telling me we've been browned out for damn near 100 days. And um, I'm, I'm disappointed because this is blown by me. But I'm, I'm putting blame on myself. But this, this can't be. And I, and I don't care if it's a, a nationwide. Before I got here, we were a training facility. People came to Vacaville to learn how to become a firefighter and they left. And I feel like we're there again and we didn't learn our lesson. Uh, I've been out there, I've been talking to your staff. They're overworked. You've said you mandated these folks and they don't wanna be mandated anymore. I don't know how we hit the emergency button and bring these folks on. I know there's a process, Chief, but I feel like 82 days ago, we should have been here having this discussion or 85 days ago. I am uh, very, very disappointed. Uh, we have to open this back up. We can't be browned out. We promised the public we would not be browned out. I don't know what it's gonna take, uh, but we can't have our folks leaving the massive amounts that they're leaving and not backfilling it. And we have to figure out why, uh, you know, it's not gonna be an easy fix. Um, however, now I feel like we're 85 days or whatever, even back to July 5th, uh, you know, how many, how many folks that live here in Vacaville have left our departments? You know, um, when I went through five, five different campaigns and I said, public safety, public safety, public safety. We all sit up here. We're all very lucky that up here in a hometown that everybody's like, oh, the hometown feel, even though we have 110,000 folks. And that the reason why that is, is because public safety, people wearing uniforms, we got military folks, we got fire, we got police, we have our CDCR folks. Um, and that's what makes it. If we're letting all these folks leave or they're failing, we have to figure out how to plug that and make sure that we're recruiting faster than we're losing these folks. And I, I know that you feel the same. I know you do, but we, we're failing, failing miserably. And we should not be browned out, period. Um, we have to fix it. And, um, you know, uh, I don't wanna be a training ground. Um, are, you know, you said, you mentioned what, two more folks? You already know that we're leaving? I've been notified by them that they're in backgrounds for another agency, yes. That's, that's insane. And I, and I know hometown, homegrown folks living right here have left us to go to other agencies. 
People are leaving us to go somewhere else. And that can't happen. We have to stop that. Uh, Vice Mayor Stockton. So you're six people down and you have six more people leaving, is that correct? We actually have eight, eight current vacancies with two recent retirements that we've had. So eight yeah. total vacancies yeah. currently. Yes. And then to have how many people that are looking to leave? Or we have two, two more in background. Okay, so it'll be a and, total of 10. Yeah, and then we have two that are retiring by the end of the year. That would be 12. So what are we doing? I mean, do we have like medic ambulance? Are they helping us out? Like, are they coming out and helping us when we have shortages? Uh, well, they will if we run out. So if we run out, completely run out of ambulances, they will help us out. So I did, I ran the numbers on that. Um, for in the past year, medic ambulance has, uh, they rarely have to do that. Um, in the past year, uh, medic ambulance have had, has had to transport 43 uh, patients out of Vacaville, out of um, nearly 8,000 transports in the past year. Um, 16 of those um, uh, medic ambulance transports were during one of the 88 browned out days. 68 of them? 16, 1-6, oh, yes. Um, the folks that are leaving, how many years on do they have um, in general or with our agency or there's a differentiation of the, where their first or second agent was? How many? How are they like one to five year guys? Are they 10 year people, 12 year people? What is the general consensus of the group uh, leaving? I'm trying to think of all the, the, the people. Three of them have been, had been here for nearly seven years. Um, and then the other uh, one had been here for uh, nearly five years and then the other two um, had been here for um, about three years. So less than 10. Yep. Um, and you said you did a lateral recruitment, but you only filled two spots? Yes. How many people applied for that? Uh, I don't recall, uh, Vice Mayor Stockton, uh, but uh, we only had, um, I believe, don't quote me on this number, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 10 or 11 that we uh, were able to, uh, that we were able to schedule for interviews. And then out of that 10 is how you got those two? Yes. Okay, and then can you give me the number one more time for the forced overtime that people are working? So that the it's percentage, gone, the percentage, the percentage yeah, it peaked at, it's back down because since it's, uh, since Medic 72 is browned out, right. we've got two less positions that we have to fill. It's down to about uh, 11 or 12% in the past month, but it peaked, I believe, I believe it was August, right, Alex? I believe it was 40% in August. So that means 40% uh, of each hour, of each overtime, or all the overtime hours worked is being forced on somebody. I know you can't give me names, but um, I'm, I'm curious what kind of effect had on the mental health of the people in your department. Uh, we have people that are injured, but what is this? Are we having any sort of mental health issues with some of these guys related? I mean, that's a lot, 40% in August. And um, 
running 12 short in an 86 person department? Okay. 84, 84 suppression. So, yeah. So yeah, that, that's pretty scary. I'm sorry, yeah, 84 suppression, not counting the commands. Do we still have the um, Portico app or we something do. where you can look into, do you have any of that off, off, off your head by chance? Uh, I, I know that the, the use of the the use of the, the, the Cortico app and for therapy services and mental services um, as far as our firefighters has greatly increased. Um, the precipitating event to that really was COVID um, and, it's, and it's, it's stayed up through then. I have, uh, we, I agree with the mayor. Um, I think we need to fix this. Um, I think we can, but uh, you know, the council has, everybody on this council, when you've asked for stuff, um, has answered up, tried to rise to the occasion to, to help out. And so I, I don't know what for your department to be able to fully staff. But when I think about a shortage in staffing, it leads me to believe that there's a shortage in And those, those wait times, you know, um, people live here because Instead of our county having, or other counties having two ambulances, five. So um, seconds save lives. So whatever we need to do, um, get together. I'd like to schedule some time to maybe meet with you and, and get some ideas on, on what it is that sources wise. Because I think overall, when, when you know what you need and you ask council, does what Mr. Mayor, if I could, um, to that point, we appreciate the council's concern about the crisis. And that's why we before you tonight with the recommendation for the augmentation. So if it's okay with the mayor, if we could move on to that next part. Actually, I got everybody's lit up. So well, I'm gonna walk through the council. I'm not gonna cut our council members off. I do have one more before I open it up to everybody else. Um, actually two. So, and you showed me all your increased seconds and minutes and just help me out here. I know sitting up here, we were getting really close to um, these seconds and minutes uh, make us lose uh, some insurance. We have to end up paying more. Help me with this. ISO rating? Yeah. And we were getting to a point where we were going to be like the top rated. Uh, obviously, this is crushing us because it doesn't help when you add these. Um, so I'm worried about spending actually more money. Um, and then how much do we lose? And I don't know if you can even give me an answer tonight, but how much do we lose when we bring in someone, train them, and then they leave us? That's gotta be huge. I know for our department where I work, my real full-time job, if somebody comes in we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars getting them up to training, and then they jump and they go somewhere else, we just lose that and we have to go join somebody else. So I don't know if you can give me an answer tonight, but. I just feel like we're bleeding money and we shouldn't be. I, I don't have exact numbers on there, but you would have to, you would have to factor in the, the recruitment cost, um, you know, the staff time through HR and, and the fire department that it costs to recruit folks, um, as well as to, to put the, the firefighters through um, an academy, the academy cost mm -hmm. that you can see or what we're asking for, um, as well as paying uh, those recruit firefighters for the 16 weeks while they're in the academy and yet not yet filling uh, spots. Um, I would imagine, um, I, I don't have a, a number on what that costs, but the, the, we realize the costs are significant. Right. I'm going to ask uh, 
Richie Roberts Sullivan, you have your hand up. The city manager asked if we can get to the next part. Do you want to speak now or do you want to? Okay. Go ahead and move on to your next. Okay. So uh, this actually play, transitions real well into, um, so we are doing something about it and we're trying to do something about it. Unfortunately, um, the, what we thought was going to be, uh, what we thought was a, a quick fix to the crisis that we had as far as the lateral paramedic uh, recruitment um, didn't yield as many um, uh, firefighter paramedics as, as we needed. Um, and so we started looking at wh what's causing this, what can we do uh, um, better? And so we have a, a minimum, of, we've got to fill, the way our staffing works is we have to fill a total of 26 seats every day. Um, so that's the minimum staffing that we have is 20, 26 people on duty every day. If one of those folks uh, calls in, um, calls in sick, takes vacation, has any kind of other protected leave, uh, we have to backfill that spot. And the way we backfill that spot is uh, one of two ways. We use one of the two, we have two extra budgeted positions uh, per shift right now. What, I'm, what we're requesting um, is to increase uh, the number of buffer positions from two per shift up to five per shift. And that's why we're asking for it. So it's three shifts times three extra buffer positions. Um, we're asking to increase by a total of uh, nine bodies. Uh, so you either fill it with one of those buffer positions or you fill it with overtime. Um, and so, uh, Basically, what we're doing is we're, we're requesting that uh, we, we increase our budget to allow us to, to hire uh, nine additional folks to act as uh, buffer positions so that when our, uh, so when our other firefighters, our minimum staffing goes down, uh, we're able to backfill them with these ready uh, firefighters. Um, They'll be uh, used to, to create uh, or to fill vacancies created by when minimum staffing um, firefighters take some sort of leave. Um, the buffer positions, because you backfill with either a buffer position or overtime, so our overtime numbers are here right now, um, the, the buffer positions will decrease the amount of overtime that's having to be worked because we're, we're going to be using one of these firefighters that's already getting paid and that's their regular duty day. Um, I, I know, uh, we're in a, uh, we're, as you know, mentioned, we're, we're in crisis mode right now. We're short firefighters. Unfortunately, uh, there are no quick fixes. It takes a while to get people, um, uh, staffed up. And so, um, if this is approved tonight, um, the plan is to put, um, We've got, uh, we've got an academy of 14 planned starting in January. It's a 16-week academy. Uh, they're supposed to uh, graduate in late April. Um, you add another two weeks where they're not minimum staffing yet, and so they can fill spots and actually fill vacancies um, probably around the, the second week of May is what I'm anticipating. Um, and then uh, the mix of firefighter EMTs. Firefighter EMTs are are a little bit easier to hire than paramedics right now. We wanted, um, we were hoping to have a mix of uh, uh, four uh, paramedics and um, 10 
uh, EMTs in this in this academy. We didn't have enough uh, fire, uh, firefighter medic candidates, so we're uh, going two and twelve right now. Um, and then uh, in May we're gonna or we're gonna do we're planning on doing another lateral hire um, to to fill the remaining three positions that I'm asking for, um, as well as to fill backfill for the two retirements that we're anticipating in um, at, by the end of December. Uh, that is a, a the the. The academy for laterals is much shorter and the, the onboarding process is much faster. Uh, we can start that academy as soon as this basic academy uh, starts. That's a four week process and it's about a six week onboarding process for them. So they can probably be minimum staffing um, probably by the middle of June. Um, so by um, everything goes right, um, this is approved. Uh, we will be to full staffing uh, with the number of paramedics that we need, uh, number EMTs we need by the middle of June. When does 72 open? We give you nine to nine. When can we get it back out of brown? Well, uh, I'm hoping to bring it back earlier than that. I mean, there's, there is no quick fix to, to, there's no, I can't, I can't flip a switch right. and bring it back. I've got to wait right now. I've got, um, I've got five uh, folks that are out long-term due to an injury, long-term injury, and I'm waiting to see um, when they come back. I've got another one that is waiting for a surgery. He's still uh, working, but waiting for a surgery date, so he's gonna be out um, long-term. Um, I was hoping to, be, I was hoping to bring, this, uh, bring it back, uh, back in because I was waiting for three of our injured folks to come back on duty and I was um, and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of it was uh, middle of October I was trying to um, bring it back and um, and we had three people get better go back to release to full duty but we had two more people injured so um, I'm not gaining any. So what I'm, uh, Mayor, I, I wish I had a, a good uh -huh. answer for you. What I'm waiting for, if I can get three people back to, to full duty of, of my injured folks, I can get it back in service. I just feel like nine's not enough. I don't, I don't know if you're asking for enough because you're saying to get nine by May. How many folks are we going to retire between now and next year? This, this, uh, this includes all of this uh, uh, accounts for all of that. I've had other chiefs come up here and say, oh, I just need four, and it never plugs the hole. And, and again, it's unacceptable that we're shut down right now. It's unacceptable. So if you're asking for nine, absolutely, I'll be in favor for nine, but I don't want you to short me because you're like, I need 12, but I'll ask for nine. I don't want that. I'm not shorting you. M Mr. Uh, Mayor, if, if I could just interject, just yeah. to be clear, Chief, if you could just make it real clear so yeah. that the eight vacancies that you have of the 14 that will be going through the academy will be those eight vacancies, six of the nine buffer positions that we're asking for tonight, followed by three more laterals coming in right. um, near the April-May timeline. So you'll have 14 to fill the eight vacancies, and then you have the buffer positions um, as part of that. What's that? 12 are, e 12 are EMTs. 
why why are we having such a hard time recruiting folks as far as paramedics as far well uh, as far as paramedics uh the there there's uh, a lot of different reasons for the lack of paramedic um, candidates right now uh one uh, is uh, which uh, covid um, caused a, a significant decrease. I don't have any real hard numbers, but I've heard numbers as high, high as um, at one point there was, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, you get 10,000 paramedics graduate from paramedic school a year. Um, and during the, the COVID pandemic, you were getting as uh, fewer than a thousand. So there aren't as many candidates out there. So we just, we are just not getting the number of, uh, we're still able to hire um, and we're still able to able to hire firefighter EMTs um, to to a certain extent, and we did get a grant um, to to send. Um, and you guys approved that a couple uh, meetings ago. We did get a grant to send a couple uh, or six of our firefighter EMTs to paramedic school. That'll help us out also. Councilmember Ritchie. Okay. Um, I, I, um, I was there and I felt like I was less smart because it's amazing what you do when you see someone in their craft, their profession. So I, when I look at you, Chief, and, and the captains, and Ian walked out, but you guys, you guys know your job, and like I will stay in my lane. I will never pretend like I know um, and give you advice and, and what you do and your staffing. But um, I really respect your your request, and I, I really was echoing kind of what um, the mayor was saying. Like, I just don't want this to come in front of us, and your apprehension to ask for exactly what you want. I, I want to make sure that we were able to kind of really step up and provide. Like, you're the, you're the expert. Like, I'm not gonna pretend because I'm here. I know more than you. But if you tell us, hey, nine is good. Gosh, eleven or twelve is what we really need to, to kind of lower the shoulders and, and release the mental and physical stress. And I'm all in. I think, um, I mean, we, so we study the numbers. Um, I felt good today. Goldman Sachs had a very good report out. I don't think 23 is as bad as I thought it was going to be. So uh, um, it's, I think we're in a place where we can kind of have some faith to go forward and, and make an investment in our departments and our city. We're doing it for biotech. I just, if, it, if the ask is right, I think it's the time. That's all. Vice Mayor Stockton. Um, just real quick, um, can you go over the quality of service, like the differences between a medic and a paramedic? Just concerns. You mean an EMT and a paramedic? Excuse me, yeah, um, an EMT and a paramedic. And only because, and the reason why I ask is because some of the information, I, I'm trying to, how to say this, um, the people that are leaving, are they leaving and not having to work in ambulance, or are they leaving still working in ambulance? And clearly an EMT isn't going to work in ambulance. EMTs, our ambulances have one EMT and one paramedic on it. Okay. So yeah. then what is, what is the difference in quality of employee uh, or skills? A, an EMT or an emergency medical technician is um, provides what we could call basic life support. Um, so they can take a blood pressure, they can do um, basic um, uh, met, uh, uh, patient assessments and, and those types of things. They usually are the ones that um, that are helping the paramedics in, in patient care. Uh, the uh, the paramedics provide what we call advanced life support. So they're the ones that are delivering medications um, and uh, 
putting on the heart monitor um, and, uh, and, and also uh, if, if uh, need be if on a, in cardiac arrest, they're the ones that provide the shock to, to the heart. So um, those are the, the differences. Basic life support as far as EMT is concerned, advanced life support for paramedics. Um, each one of our, um, our apparatus, our engines and trucks have at least one paramedic on it. And then our ambulances also are required to have at least one paramedic on it. But in general, you want paramedics. Uh, if your loved one is, is receiving medical care from the Vacaville Fire Department, you prefer a medic taking care of them or, or a paramedic taking care of them or? No, obviously, I mean, if, if uh, the advanced, if it needs advanced life support, then yeah, you would definitely need a paramedic, yes. So is there a specific reason why we're not asking for nine? So essentially this is, uh, yeah, yeah, so we're, this is essentially an ask for, for that. And it's the, we have to have a, a certain number of paramedics to, to be able to provide the service that we have. <coughs> um, this is the, the quicker, um, this is the, the quicker way to get folks on. I can't, I can't guarantee if I, I can't stand up here right now and say, Hey, I want an academy of 14 people. And I want all 14 uh, folks to be paramedics. I can't promise you that I'm going to be able to deliver 14 paramedics. Right okay. Now. But can so, you promise us that, that there will be a commitment by the fire department to turn them into paramedics? I mean, I'm interested in providing the highest quality service of life-saving services that we can. Right, and if you're telling me that advanced is better than the EMT, is there a pathway to make to get them there? You said you've got two people in there. Yes. How many EMTs do we have versus paramedics in the department? How many should we have? We have the we have the uh, proper number of paramedics versus EMTs. They're the proper mix right now. So and the folks that are leaving. Yes. Are they paramedics or are they EMTs? Uh, we've had a, a mix, mostly paramedics. Hmm. Okay, Steve. No more questions. Okay, okay. thank you. Thanks. Want to finish up your slideshow? Yep. So jumping into the five-year forecast, we have an updated five-year forecast based off of, um, we add in the, the recommended budget augmentations and then also the MOU that was discussed right before this item. And so um, for the, the forecast uh, for two biggest revenue sources, sales tax and property taxes, we mentioned in prior um, updates, we work with HDL on that. This forecast does um, include an updated sales tax um, numbers from HDL. And so with the most recent uh, projections that they've given us sales tax, I mean, we are starting to see, or they're projecting that kind of what we're seeing economically it is gonna um, kind of impact our sales tax. And so compared to what we presented in June, the sales tax number is down about a million dollars a year or about 3.5% for property tax. Um, what we get in the current fiscal year, that's based off of assessed values from last January. So when we come back and do the mid-year update, um, we'll have an idea if, you know, it's gonna be after January, we'll know what assessed values are and we would revise the property tax projections at that point in time. And on the expenditure side, I'd mentioned that this includes all the budget augmentations. And then um, also for, for CalPERS or pension liability, this uh, includes um, the updated valuation through fiscal year 21, and which was a really great year for investments uh, for CalPERS. They earned over 20%. 
for 22, although we're not gonna have a final number from that from CalPERS until this August. Um, we know that they lost about 7% because 22 was a bad investment year. And so we've built that into this forecast as well. And so um, similar to prior updates, the way you would read this, the lines are the revenues and think of the columns as the expenses. And then when you see a green column, that means that's when there's a surplus. And so working um, from left to right for fiscal year 22, as mentioned earlier, Total general fund surplus was 15 million, which is represented by that green part. And then um, for 23, we're projecting a $2.1 million surplus. And then um, in 27, it's about 8.2 there. Next slide, please. So a lot of talk about recession um, in the news and everything. And so we have, similar to what we did during budget adoption, we put sort of a range of what would it look, what would it look like if revenues were to be, let's say 5% higher because they continue to outpace our projections what would it look like if they actually went down by 5% because of, let's say, a recession scenario? So that's represented by the green dashed line up top would be if they were to, um, if revenues actually came in higher than what we're projecting, and if revenues would actually be below um, what we have in there, that's represented by the dashed red line. And so what that looks like is the 5% swing would be about $7 million a year. And then um, if a recession scenario, or this particular recession scenario played out, we would be looking at it's a $2.9 million gap between total general fund revenues and what we spent. Next slide, please. So this is uh, the reserves. So we looked at revenues and expenses. This is what the reserve looks like based off of our forecast, not that kind of recession scenario. And so you'll notice that from fiscal year 23 through 27, that general fund reserve, which is that top row, stays at 58 million. And the reason why is because although we're projecting a surplus in those outside years, we're also working with the assumption that um, we wouldn't the council wouldn't continue to build on the reserve given that it's 50% that you would actually see one-time projects or on like basically increasing services. And that's why um, we're projecting a balanced budget for those outside years. Um, expressed as a percentage, that's 48% in 23 um, to four, and going down to 42% 40, in 27. The ADT payment that you see in the middle, that is um, an um, initiative that council approved as part of the budget. So, you know, given the fact that we have very strong reserves, we also have that unfunded liability out there. By making these annual ADP payments, we're paying down the liability faster and saving on interest costs, and that's what that number represents. So under that scenario, it shows what the general fund reserve would be at the end of 27, which is 49 million, and that reserve goes down to 36%, but that's a plan and a reduction. It's just the fact that with the reserve being as high as it is, it makes more sense to kind of use some of that to pay down the high interest liability. Next slide, please. The recommendation this evening it would be to uh, approve the budget augmentations to the fiscal year 23 operating budget in the amount of 960,000. Next slide. And that concludes the presentation. We have to take questions. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. I'm going to open up public. Seeing none, I'm going to close public entertain motion. All those in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Unanimous. Thank you, staff. All right, Mr. City Manager, let's go to uh, E. So, Mr. Mayor, um, just point of order, um, given we do have the one item left, but it is past the 1030 hour, so council needs to decide that you're gonna go forward with the meeting and finish this item. I just, didn't know we had a 1030 curve. Well, you you do, but you can choose to go past it. I'd like so, to, uh, I think this would actually be good for the council to bring it out of everybody else. They'll, Great. They'll they'll be they'll be getting just to. Great. Let's to push it to the new council. The new council will be getting an update. 
as part of the the update when they arrive, but it's up to kids. NF, DNF, we're pushing? <laughs> yep. Awesome. Everybody else good? We have to make a motion or we're good? You are able to hear 9F if you like tonight. No, if I don't want to hear anything else. I want to go home. Then it's up to you. That's the only item you have left. All right, we're going to push D and F. Good night, Vagabond. I don't want city manager. <laughs> <laughs>